Alright, Jorn, before we can begin, what's the password? Walt sent me. Well, stupid, are you ready? Okay, Smokey, roll him. <laughs> That's silly. Shoot him now! Shoot him now! Oh, I gotcha! <laughs> Hello everyone, and welcome to That's Not Quite All Folks, the Looney Tunes Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Hallam, joined by... And I'm Jordan Schmidt, and welcome to the last episode of 2022. What a year it has been. We've gotten a lot done this year. We've done a lot. And what's very funny is that we had a plan of how this year was going to end for us that ended up not going completely to fruition, but we decided in... In lieu of our original idea to do something else that would be frigging awesome to end the year, and that is to cover one of our favorite movies that, yes, is connected to the Looney Tunes. And it's a big one. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. It's 1988's Touchstone Pictures, Amblin Films production, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Mm-hmm. This is a movie that both of us love. Uh, Mark, it is your favorite movie of all time. It is. It, it is. is in my top 50, if not in my top 25. I, I have to revise that list. But it is one of my all-time favorite movies of, uh, of all time. Even though I can admit to my first couple times watching this movie, really not loving it because of you know the last 20 or so minutes scaring the shit out of me. Uh, I can admit that. But... And- I can I can fully admit that it took me a few watches to fully appreciate the movie past the Toontown sequence. Yes, because I think for for a long time for me, I would you know I would like the movie, and then and then we get to Toontown, I'll be like, this is the greatest movie ever made, yeah. and I would I would enjoy it beyond that point, which is like the last twenty five thirty minutes. <laughs> But um, over the years, I've really grown to like watch it fully and it, and really enjoy it fully. And it's only been the past couple, I would say, past maybe five, six years, where I'm like, oh yeah, this is my favorite movie of all time. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's just, incredible. It has so much for it. But uh, yeah, come hell or high water, we were going to cover a Looney Tunes crossover movie. So why not do the best damn one? Exactly. And it's funny because um, this is a movie that two podcast friends of ours have already actually covered because my friends at Random Movie Roulette, uh, which is no longer, but they're still doing other things, did a collab with uh, Varicon Video before I joined. Like, it was was really good back then, and then I joined it became awesome. Uh, (laughs) Not to toot my own horn too much. Um, but yeah, they did a collab on this movie and it was great because you got to see like Jack bouncing off because Jack loves this movie. Brandon loves this movie. You got to see all of them bouncing off each other, just covering this movie. I, I, I always had fun listening to that one. I wanted to make sure if we ever covered this one that we wanted that, it, that we would do it justice as well and not do everything that they did. Yeah. And I will say, um, it's because of that damn episode, because, um, and around like last year, one of my favorite podcasts uh, on YouTube, it ended. So I messaged Jordan like, 
hey man, like, do you have any, like, recommendations of, like, shows I could listen to? And you're like, oh, well, there's this show my friends do. They did a Roger Rabbit episode. You can listen to that. I'm like, okay. And son of a bitch. You got me into both of these damn shows. Uh-huh. It's the effect I, I have on you. thank you for it. Yeah. I thank you for no, it. No, no, of course. But, uh, yeah, just, <sighs> it, it's a really good episode. So after you listen to this one, please, by, by all means, go listen to uh, the Very Come Video Random Roulette episode. Cause yeah. It's, it's fantastic. But but till then, but, but till then, should we discuss our memories of Who from Roger Rabbit? Like, how'd you first come into contact with this movie, Jordan? Well, I think that this was one of those movies that would be on, like, either cable or, like, uh, Cartoon Network or one of those channels a lot when I was a kid. And I would watch it just because there was nothing else like it. And I it took me a while to really get it because... Initially, I was like, wait, why is Bob Hoskins acting like this? Why is he acting so tough? And, like, because I'd obviously watched stuff like Space Jam and Back in Action first. So I knew what this genre could be. And I wasn't sure if, like, okay, is this, this is good. But, and then, of course, I would watch the the ending with Judge Doom. And I'd be like, okay, this is horrible. I don't want any more of this. And it was one of those movies that as I gave it more of a chance and as I was able to just understood what it did and how good it could be while also being, you know, terrifying, as well as how good it could be as a Robert Zemeckis film. Um, after Because I, I also love Back to the Future. I think arguably a little bit more than this. Um, then then I really got it. And and then I remember last year we watched it. No, no, no. During the pandemic, we watched this together. And I'm like, okay, I get it now. Yeah, so it was that, that wonderful time before we decided to do a podcast. We are like... Let's just watch our favorite movies. Yeah. And looking back, I got to admit, I'm kind of kicking myself. I'm like, shit, we could have recorded that. We really could have, <laughs> but uh, we're making up for it. Because we did it. There was a, a whole bunch of really good stuff we watched in there. The stuff we'd grown up uh, oh my with God. as kids. Uh, you know, like uh, Rugrats in Paris, National Treasure, both National Treasure movies. Uh, Space Jam and Back in Action, I think we're both in there. This, uh, matter of fact, we watched Spy Kids on literally the night I found out my grandmother died. Oh. So I'm feeling shitty, and you're like, hey, you want to watch Spy Kids? And I'm like, well, I'm not going to say no. <laughs> not to Spy Kids. Yes. Which which holds up surprisingly well. Oh, no, I like Spy Kids a lot. Um, yeah. But yeah, this was probably the best of those, because I'm like, oh, shit, that's Roger oh Rabbit. Roger Rabbit, this is still really fucking good. Yeah. My, my history with this movie is this was another movie... That my parents had in their Disney VHS collection. That when I was born, they're like here because that's the way with my parents. With my parents is that they love Disney movies, so they grew up in the time where Disney was just releasing their movies on VHS. So every time a Disney VHS came out, they're like, "Oh dang, we should buy this." So they did, and I came along, and they're like, "Here, here's every <laughs> there." They're responsible for all this, is what I'm saying. Yeah. But anyways, so Roger Rabbit was one of those movies. And I I watched it on VHS. And I have a clear memory of watching Roger Rabbit. The, the Bugs Mickey scene happens. I freak the fuck yeah. out. Run out of my room. I'm like, mm-hmm. the, the Bugs and Mickey are together. This is the greatest thing ever. 
then I ran back in and watched the rest of the movie. Because Little Kid Me was very easily entertained. <laughs> and just like, like oh, that, that was my... That was my, you know, Avengers Endgame moment, if you had to say it, or something like that. It's like, oh my god, these are my... Uh, actually, no, scratch that. This th- th- That was my Spider-Man No Way Home moment yeah. before for that. So, that was amazing. And, yeah. yeah, I would just watch this movie whenever I I felt like it. Um, I, I, I A couple of years ago... You know, it's so funny. I... They had this, like, two-disc DVD back in the day. It looked really cool. It, it it was like a detective file. It's like, oh, Roger Rabbit, it's a two-disc set. And I'm like, ooh, should I buy that? But, like, like, I never got around to it because I still had my VHS. And I took care of my VHS. And then it wasn't, it wasn't that long ago. I'm like, I should Probably own my favorite movie yeah. on at the very least DVD. So I got the um the 25th anniversary Blu-ray DVD combo pack a couple of years ago, and then they released the 4K. I'm like, God damn it, I should have waited. But oh well. So yeah, I can watch this movie whenever I want, and um yeah, it, it's it's a movie where if I don't always come back to it every year. I at least come back to it every other year. Yeah. It's, it's also, it's, it's very funny that I didn't own this on physical media until like within the last year or so. Because I found a nice, relatively recent Blu-ray of this uh, on, at my local used record and DVD or whatever place. And um, they had like half price DVDs and Blu-rays that day. And it was like, four bucks with the exchange. So I'm like, all right, I'm getting this finally. And that's not even to mention that I also have nostalgia for some of the shorts that Disney put out with these characters, like the VHS to Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, which I would take out of the library every so often, came with the short Tummy Trouble that um, that was a Herman and, and Roger short. I have nostalgia for those as well. Yeah, I, I don't have nostalgia for those, unfortunately. But thankfully... And this is something that I found so damn funny. So Disney Plus, right when we launched Disney Plus, Roger Rabbit was there day one. In fact, I think that was like the first movie I put on when I got Disney Plus was oh, Roger good. Rabbit. And I, I found it funny because in the extras, you can watch the shorts. And mm-hmm. then within the past year, Disney's been doing this thing where they're like, oh, we have to make it look like we have more in our library. Quick, pull the shorts from the extras tab and just... Give them their own spot on the service. Yeah. It looks like we have more, which is like, that's a cheap move, but also, eh, I guess it's more easier to find, you know, if you really want to watch them. So, yeah, it's nice. But yeah, we both have lots of nostalgia for this movie and all the surrounding. I actually, the last time, and Mark, I told you about this, but earlier this year, this has been a wild fucking year for me. Uh, to, to say the very least... For a brief moment earlier this year, I wound up for about like a couple hours in Disneyland. I don't know why. I don't know how. But I was in the downtown section of Disneyland in Anaheim. And I was getting I was getting some some stuff for some people. And they have a whole wall of pins there, because of course they fucking do. And so <laughs> One of the things I needed to look for was I needed to look if they had like a Roger Rabbit pin. And sure enough, they did. They had one of, you know, a, a, I think it was, it's Eddie the Cab or whatever. Um, Benny. Yeah. Hmm? 
Benny the Cab. Benny the Cab. Yeah, I was... Co- Again, I've seen this movie several times, just not as many as Mark. Benny the Cab and Roger and Jessica, and it's very cute and awesome. And I have that pin now. Because I, I got a couple. I got... um for my uh for a very good friend of mine i got the uh, the ellie badge from um up because i'm a fucking sap and i think i got one other thing i just forget what the fuck it was um no no it was a muppets one with the, but it was from the 2011 design i think and nice. yeah so i have you know the, roger rabbit doesn't have a ton of merch or at least tangible right now but i have that and that's a pretty big fucking deal oh man yeah I, you know, the, there's a YouTuber I sometimes watch, and like near the end of their videos, they'll they'll show up, and oh, I see they're wearing a Roger Rabbit shirt. I'm like, where did you get that shirt? And like, I, I think I think he got it on Etsy or something. Okay, like I, I, I don't that know. It's, it's like, but yeah, like like Roger Rabbit merchandise should be easier to find. I, I would especially think in Disneyland because that's where it has the Roger Rabbit yeah. ride. Mm-hmm. But uh, oh yeah. Right. Yeah. Forgot about that. Didn't get to go on any rides that day. Uh, I was doing uh, something else that was weird. But um, but yeah, uh, we both love this movie. We wanted to talk about it on one of these because eventually we're going to run out of specifically Looney Tunes canon movies and we we're going to just end up talking about movies that we really enjoy that are either Looney inspired or have Looney Tunes characters in them. And this is definitely one of those. So shall we begin to get into what makes this movie what it is? I think so. Okay. First thing is first. We said, you said in the intro that um, this is a Touchstone production. Who Framed Roger Rabbit is a Disney film, but it was put out by Touchstone. Should we go into detail about what Touchstone was supposed to be back in the day? Because I think people have a vague idea of it. Oh, it's a Disney under company, but like... Touchstone was supposed to be a whole different kind of thing back in like the 80s and 90s. Yeah, so one of my favorite subjects, and I I talk about this in a commentary that's coming next month, but one of my favorite subgenres of Disney history is Disney in the 70s and 80s, also known as, you know, the World Walt Do era. Yes. I, I, I like to call it, we don't know what the fuck we're doing era, because they did not know what the fuck they were doing. Because around this time, Disney wasn't a guaranteed box office draw anymore by the 70s and 80s, due to a large part to the cinema landscape changing, blockbusters Mm -hmm. being a main form of revenue, Star Wars, stuff like that. Jaws. So, Jaws. Yes. Funny, I bring up both of those. Spielberg. Huh, I wonder why. Um, so by, by this time in the 80s, they're having this major issue. Nobody's seeing their movies. Most importantly, adults and teenagers aren't seeing their movies. And they're the ones who have money to burn. Money? Yes. Because ah, believe, gah, 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 gah. It not, believe it or not, Mr. Krabs, teenagers ah. are not going to pay money to see Herbie goes bananas. They're not? No, uh, oh. no they're also not going to see The Black Hole, no matter how much money you throw You mean they're it. not going to see something wicked this way comes? No, no. They're also they're also probably not going to see Tron, even though it looks. Why pretty. not? Tron's great. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, because well, it's the '80s and they don't have don't have don't know how to market anything. Got it. Exactly. Um. So in 1984, Disney established Touchstone Pictures, a studio whose 
prime focus is to make films that the Disney brand couldn't make. Mm. So Touchstone films can have sex. They can have violence. They can curse. Ooh. Mm-hmm. They can say they can drop the F-bomb if they wanted yeah, to. Yeah, like they did in Adventures in Babysitting. And, oh, except if you see the Disney Plus copy, in which case it's Don't Mess with the Babysitter. Or, or Splash, where you can totally see her ass, except you can't. Yeah. I don't know. They're, they're cowards now. They're, they're, they're no longer worried. They are. Deadpool's on there. What are we saying? <laughs> they're, they're no longer worried, which... Should I don't know? It's yeah. kind of been fun the last couple of months to see them getting a little bit worried. It's like that's yeah. good, you know. By the way, before you go on, um, I, I think do you know where they got the name Touchstone from, Mark? This is actually a pretty cool. I, thing. I, I don't actually. Well, my theory, and I think this is probably what they did. Uh, Touchstone is a Shakespeare character from As You Like It. He is the sort of, he is a very dumb character. That says a lot of things that comes off as smart. And I think that's a very, like, a metaphor for what they were trying to do. We are trying to Sounds appeal smart. to more people and sound like we are doing these big things while also still being Disney. Now, that may be a complete other read into it, but I think that's what they were doing. Touchstone is a fun Shakespeare character, by the way. Anybody who gets to play Touchstone has a good time. So. And Touchstone began with... With Splash, with you know, Tom Hanks, Daryl Hannah, and Eugene yes, Levy, movie. and John Candy. Mm-hmm. And it led to other successes, such as Ruthless People, The Color of Money, Adventures in Babysitting. Later on, they would have more success with What About Bob, the 1990s remake of Father the Bride with Steve Martin, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Love and, in their, and in their later years, what kind of cope would... Ironically enough, Wood co-produced with Spielberg on films such as Lincoln and their last film that kind of means anything, uh, Bridge of Spies. Yeah, very interesting studio. And, and I, I just remember having, like, you know, it, it's it's the weird cuss of like, okay, it's, it's Disney, but it's not like like full Disney. It's, it's, it's light Disney. It's not Disney with the complete wonder and merriment of all the Disney movies. It's like, okay... People can do human being things without having to be mystical and magical and wonderful. They're not chained to what a Disney film should be at the time. Right. Of course, I also have to point out that, I mean, yes, and, and they made Who for Roger Rabbit. But yes, I also did. have to point out, they made some misfires. Oh, yeah. Um, Depending on who you ask, they made Dick Tracy. Oh. <laughs> they made uh, Wild Hogs. And uh, Kazam with Shaquille O'Neal. So their track record wasn't perfect either. But compared to where Disney was at this time, they were doing amazing. Yeah. They, a lot of their work in in the 80s was a lot more profitable than a lot of what the flagship company was doing. Although eventually it got to the point where once Disney's renaissance began in 1989 and 1991... Touchstone pictures were less of a draw because, oh, yeah, yeah, our animated movies can do all these things. And so, really, there's only two Touchstone properties that Walt Disney Productions really reference like as, as IPs. And those productions are Who Framed Roger Rabbit and The Nightmare Before Christmas. Both of those have been sort of grandfathered into the regular Disney brand with, 
I mean, uh, you'll find this out if you uh, catch the first episode of the Filmlies in about a couple of weeks, or maybe more or less. I don't know when these are coming out. But y- there was a whole debate when we were getting that together about what we would classify Nightmare Before Christmas as, because it is technically a Disney film. It's technically a Disney animated film, but it's, you know, touchstone, and it doesn't, it's, it doesn't fit with a lot of the other ones. So, but Disney has grandfathered it in along with Roger Rabbit, which is interesting. So yes, this is a touchstone film. Touchstone and not Disney proper, but it's still very much a Disney film. It just had to be touchstone because of some reasons. So, um, fun fact, Mark, um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is technically a sequel to Chinatown. It just is. Well, where was Nicholson? Well, I mean, they asked him to play Eddie Valiant. He said no. <laughs> um, they asked, actually, and I'm going to get into this when we get into uh, performances. They asked basically every leading man in Hollywood if they wanted to play Eddie Valiant. <laughs> and most of them either said no or were said, I wouldn't do it. But this is basically a sequel to China. Okay, I'll explain. Because... Um, there are two screenwriters who wrote an early version of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Uh, Jeffrey Price and Peter S. Seaman make the joke yourselves. But yeah, no, these, these two screenwriters were big fans of Chinatown and wanted to make a sequel to it. And they were first, there were two planned sequels that were sort of competing in Hollywood around this time. One was the one that would become The Two Jakes, which was released in 1990 and wasn't very good. And the other one was this early Price and Seaman uh-huh, um script called Cloverleaf. And it was about, you know, corruption in LA undermining the streetcar system so the freeways could be built to replace them. Doesn't that sound familiar? Um, That's basically the plot of Roger Rabbit. And it was basically combined in this script that made the film with the book Who Censored Roger Rabbit by Gary K. Wolf, where a lot of the characters and a lot of this, uh, the main plot were found. It was basically a combination of these two things to make one mega ultra product along with you know, all these <laughs> pre-existing characters. Yes, and to, to briefly talk about that, Roger Rabbit also, I guess, also a book adaption with the Who Censored Roger Rabbit. Um, I haven't read the book. Neither have I. Just never at the time. Um, from what I know offhand, it's it's not cartoon stars, it's uh, comic. It, it's yeah. panel strip stars in Cinderella Roger Rabbit. Uh, Roger Rapid either dies or he kills someone yeah. in the book, which uh, uh, actually no, yeah, actually no. Roger was originally supposed to die in the movie because he dies in the yeah. book, uh, but then they're like, "Hey, how about we not do that?" Because uh, the audiences kind of would love the rabbit to not yeah. die, and, and we'll get into some uh, some consequences of that later in this section. Uh huh. Yeah. So. In order to really talk about Roger Rabbit's development, we have to talk about three piddle figures that made this film reality. Steven Spielberg, Robert Zemeckis, and Richard Williams. The producer, the director, and right. the animator. Father, the son, and the holy uh, uh, animator. <laughs> yes. So, Steven Spielberg, we don't have to go too much into, career, into his career <laughs> at this point, because he's Steven yeah. Spielberg. Um, by this point, he's... The one of the, if not the top directors in Hollywood, thanks to his successes with Jaws, Close Encounters, E.T., 
and uh, eventual work on Jurassic Park, Kitchener's List, and you know who he is. Yeah, he's, he's Spielberg. He's fucking awesome. Yes. Um, his studio, um, Amblin Productions, was very influential in getting the film made because mm-hmm. they had a lot of money and were doing great. The studio who also wanted to make Roger Rabbit was not doing great, and that's Disney. Because I have said at this point in time, they weren't doing so well. Um, they bought the rights to this censored Roger Rabbit book in the early eighties. Yeah. Under their previous president, Ron Miller, he's gone in a record time. He doesn't stay long as a new CEO comes in named uh, Michael Eisner. Ooh, sorry, force of habit. Hello, I'm Michael Eisner. I don't know anything about making a company. Here's a movie about a rabbit. Yes, he uh, used to run Paramount Pictures, and they moved over to Disney. And that went well for all involved parties. <laughs> it, you know, it's so strange, because, you know, Eisner comes in, and you think, Oh, Disney can make movies. No, because Disney had to sign a deal with Silver Screen Partners to help co-produce their output at the time, because they nah. were so low on money. Yeah. It, it's why it's why when you see like Little Mermaid, it's like Disney and Silver Screen Partners the fourth. It's like that sounds like a law firm. What's yeah. that doing here? Yeah, um, I mean, it worked, but yeah. So they got the rights to uh, who censored Roger Rabbit in eighty one. That's when Jeffrey Price and Peter Seaman were hired to write mm. the script. They wrote two drafts. Um, some test animation was done by Daryl Van Sitters. Wait yeah. a minute, we know that guy. Yeah, we've talked about his work with the Warner Brothers unit. So they did this uh, test animation, and and it's on the DVD. I've yeah. seen it. It's very impressive. It, it is. It looks like Roger Rabbit. It absolutely, they nailed it perfectly. The problem was, it was very, very expensive. So yes. they had to... Budget the hell out of it, and eventually they landed on thirty million, which even at the time is the most expensive animated film ever greenlit. Yeah, so they got to this point where okay, we're gonna make the movie. We're gonna need a lot more money and producing power behind this. So Disney approached Amblin to help produce the movie, which they agreed on. The main thing that Roger Rabbit got with working with Amblin is that you have Spielberg. And Spielberg is tight with everyone in Hollywood, especially at this time. So their main issue was, okay, we're going to this Roger Rabbit movie. They're not going to be comic strip characters. They're going to be animated cartoon characters of the time. In order for this to work, we need the cartoon characters. So it's it, it, it's crazy. It's, like, it's a script where if you read it, you go... Okay, then this man walks through a movie studio where Daffy Duck walks by and then like half the cast from Fantasia is doing something. And then Betty Boop is in the corner talking with the big bad It's like, that's insane. You can't do that. Lawyers are mean. Well, with Spielberg you can. Yes. So with Spielberg, um... We don't know exactly what he said, because I-, I would love to know what Spielberg said to these people to get these characters, but essentially... He probably said, Come on! Come on, guys! Me! That'd be so cool! You're not doing anything with come them on. right now! Come on! Not in that exact voice, but close. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Come on! Yeah. 
That was that lead scene from from the uh, Fablemans. <laughs> There's a scene. Yeah, the Fablemans, <laughs> where he's he's in the room with uh, Seth Rogen. He's like, okay, how are we gonna get this movie made? Come on! <laughs> oh, that that sounds fine to me. So, thanks to that, Warner Brothers, Universal, Walt Lintz, Fleischer Studios, Famous Studios, King Feature Syndicate, Felix the Cat Productions, Turner, everybody, which I don't know. Everybody. Almost everybody. MGM said no. <laughs> oh, fuck that. There, there, there's uh. no Tom and Jerry. There's no epic scene of Sylvester and Tweedy and Tom and Jerry meeting up or something. No. Sad. No. So, for $5,000 per character, they're able to get all these characters. And I assume the Disney characters for free. You know? <laughs> They're making the damn Probably. <laughs> I mean, it's in studio. Yeah. yeah, so they're all being utilized for the first time in a while. Like, this is the first appearance of some of these characters in a production since their cartoon ceased production, such as Betty Boop and what have you. We should also get into Robert Zemeckis because he is becoming as big of a name as Spielberg around this time. Because, okay, he had a Rocky star. All right, let's be clear. His first couple of movies don't make a ton of money because his first movie is the Beatles-inspired I Want to Hold Your Hand. doesn't make a lot of money. Then he tries his hand at a more mainstream comedy and he does the movie Used Cars, which I think is a really underrated movie. It's with Kurt Russell and Jack Warden and Garrett Graham, Michael McKean. It's really underrated. I think it does a lot right. Audiences didn't exactly flock towards it, but I think it's very funny. And people essentially just kept giving him chances. And then eventually he had a box office hit with Romancing the Stone, which is a big hit with, with uh, Michael Douglas. And, uh, well, I should probably go back a second because um, he was attached to this picture as, as far back as the early 80s, as far back in 1982. He wanted to be the attached director on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but nobody would greenlight, especially because this was pre-Amblin and you wouldn't get the money. It's like, all right, fine. I've only done two movies so far, used cars, and I want to hold your hand. I want to do this movie. And everybody goes, no, you, you can't. All right, he makes Romancing the Stone. Amazing movie, a big box office. Everybody loves it. Now can I do it? Uh, I don't know. Um, why don't you do a sequel to uh, Romancing the Stone? Well, I would, but you see, I'm making this other movie called Back to the Future. Um, if, if it makes that kind of money, uh, Robert, then we'll think about it. All right, he makes Back to the Future. It's huge. It's absolutely huge. Now... This is a point where you could either make those sequels to Back to the Future immediately and get the, the money that way, or you could actually get somebody to listen to him and make Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And it's literally just the, the, the you know, him being hot off of Romancing the Stone and Back to the Future, and which was also produced by Amblin, by the way. All of these factors sort of aligned that eventually they were like, all right, Robert, it is all yours. You can make this. It is all you. And, you know. The rest, as they say, is yeah. And he has some time after this release to finally make those sequels to Back to the Future. Yeah. And they went all right. So, you know, you get Zemeckis. You get Zemeckis' co-star from... You know, it's so funny. He couldn't make Roger Rabbit because he didn't have a box office hit. So when he comes in with Roger Rabbit, he's like, not only am I going to make this movie, I already got, th I already got three people or two people... From those movies, who agreed to do this movie? That being Christopher Lloyd and Kathleen yeah. Turner. So, <laughs> that worked right. out. But, uh, yeah, that's all good. The problem is is that it is 1980s. 
And animation, where animation is at this time, isn't doing fantastic. You know, because like, you know, again, Disney Animation, they're, they're just starting to work on The Little Mermaid. You know, they're just starting to maybe have a chance of getting back into the world of animation. So, if they were going to do this, they do really have the willpower to do ha- pretty much an animated movie in live action. So, Richard Williams, um, animation, uh, animator Richard Williams, comes into the scene in 1987. Now, at this time, Richard Williams was already becoming a prominent force in the feature film animation circuit. His first big project being the 1977 production of A Christmas Carol, which gave him the Academy Award for Best Animated Short, which was also produced by uh, legendary lead to director Chuck Jones. Oh, okay, so they all know each other. They all know each other. Williams was a little bit hesitant to take on the project, but Amblin and Disney were able to accommodate his needs by doing two things. One, uh, Richard Williams lives in London, and he didn't want to go to L.A. for months on end, so they moved production from America to London. And second was, okay, you work on Roger Rabbit, and we'll finance your passion project, which was a film called The Thief and the Cobbler. And didn't Miramax end up making that movie? They did. That's a whole different conversation for another day. That's a whole, that's a different story. (laughs) But the important thing about Richard Williams is obviously he came from, you know, he has this animation background. He has, he wears his influences on his sleeve. And while doing the animation for this movie, he had three real things he was working on keeping in mind it was the the character should be like the looney tunes the animation quality should be disney style and the humor should be tex avery but not so brutal so said he in order to do this you'd have to get a lot of the animation personnel involved with all these legends so how did they do that well at first they just got chuck jones to be an animation consultant on the movie yeah he didn't last long um uh According to Chuck, him and Richard were working on the Donald and Daffy piano sequence. And then Chuck got pissed because because the movie takes place in the 40s. So everyone has to be their 40s look. Yeah. And Chuck wanted Daffy to look like his Daffy. Yeah. And... Nothing against Chuck Jones' Daffy design. We love his Daffy design. But timeline-wise, and there are circumstances in this movie where the timeline doesn't quite fit for certain characters to be in this movie, but we'll get there when we get there. Um, Chuck was like, listen, I'm not doing this. So Richard Williams is like, okay, Chuck, calm down. Okay, you guys. Animate the Donald and Daffy Duck sequence using Chuck's design. He probably told Chuck, okay, fine, we'll do it. And he just told other animators, do the Bob Clampett design. Yeah. Because that's what they wanted. Because Daffy Duck in the 40s was Clampett. It was, that was the design of the time. So, yeah, Chuck wasn't too happy about the movie. And he would go on later to be like, you know, this was a ripoff. 
they they spent 50 million on effects do you know how many Warner Brother cartoons I could have made and stuff like that and uh yeah wasn't the best yeah what makes this movie work as well as it does is the fact that not only were they able to get all these animation people not only were they able to get Chuck Jones on for a little bit not only were they able to get all these styles and all these characters they were able to get the voice actors they were able to find people that had been living in these characters' lives for a while and not just get a bunch of, peop- of, of people that just were around that could do them. They, they got the real people. So, like, what's important is that they had Rusey Taylor on here for, like, almost since, like, since the test footage. Uh, Rusey Taylor, for those of you who don't know, uh, she was the longer-tenured Minnie Mouse of the 20th century. She also did Mark Martin on uh, The Simpsons, or at least did for a while until her passing. She was just like a rabbit in the test footage, which is pretty cool, considering, like, okay, you'd get, like, you know, actual actors and or Spielberg's uh, wife. But, like, okay, Rosie Taylor does it for the test footage. What they tried to basically stick to was that, like, if any of the original voice actors of these characters were still alive or still working, they got the call. They tried to make sure that, you know, people were being asked and gave them the, you know, ability to say no if they wanted to. So, for instance... Mae Questel, Betty Boop's original voice actress. She's in this. She's been doing Betty Boop for years. And they called her back and said, hey, do you want to do this? Yes, I'd love to. And it's actually really cool that they have her as Betty Boop in here. And then this is the last time that she's in this movie. The last time that she gets to play Betty Boop on screen. Um, she was still working at the time. She was um, she was in Christmas Vacation the following year as the grandmother there. Um, but yeah, it's a big deal that she's here. It's a big deal. They got all the Disney guys like Wayne Allwine and Rusey Taylor and Bill Farmer. Uh, they all got to do their roles. Um, although it is important that like Bill Farmer doesn't do goofy in this movie. Not entirely because they get Tony Pope to do it. But Bill Farmer does, uh, goofy during the end, uh, smile down your smart stuff. And they would get like, they, they get as many like voice people as possible to do the smile down your smart bits, including like some of the animators at some points. So he's there, there. Um, the only voice that Richard Williams provided here was Droopy because they couldn't get the uh, an OG Droopy. Also, because he just really liked Droopy Dog. Like as you as you say here, Mark, he's not the only person in this movie that makes a selfish decision because of what they like from the cartoons. <laughs> yeah, but all y'all are probably wondering, well, okay, if all these Disney people are in this, if all these like OGs from other animation studios in this, could they get Mel Blanc? And those of you who've seen this movie know the answer to that, which is a fucking course they did. Mel Blanc gets to be in this movie. Mel Blanc does all his old characters. Yeah, he he voices the most out of out of all of them. Yeah, they, they, they give him free reign. Listen, just do the characters. And what's so interesting about this movie is that okay, so by this time in the 1980s, talking mid mid 1980s. Mel Blanc was starting to get you know, his recognition. It was like, oh, Mel Blanc, he's actually a very important figure. But it's also around this time that his health started taking yeah. effect on his performances. You know, he smoked, so. For for instance, in his later years, he wasn't able to do Yosemite Sam. Now, there are some reports that are like, there is audio of him doing Yosemite Sam in this movie. And it was like, eh, it's not that good. Up Ooh. the snuff. So... What they did was they hired Joe Lasky yes. to do Yosemite Sam in this movie. And it's funny because he would then later take on 
all of Mel's characters in another live-action animated film with Lynchings back in action. Yes. So it's this nice little future foreshadowing of things to come. And it's like, oh, that's that's cool. But like, it, it what's so awesome about Mel being here and Mel doing all these characters, and look, we've we've had our... We've gone back and we've done a lot of stuff from the 80s on this show. And we've talked about uh, specifically Mel's voice quality and his performances in these. And we've been like, okay, how is Mel here? How is Mel doing here? And for the most part, like, he's fine. And then we get to stuff like Quackbusters. All right, clearly, you know, he's not as good as he used to be. Um, like, and, and like, you, you, you put this here as well, Mark, that, like, there was always... You could always tell when they were cutting back to a 40s cartoon and when we were seeing, like, like new footage from the 80s. Like, yes, okay, there was a bit of a difference. Yeah, I think, uh, and the, the big, the one I remember is from Quackbusters, yes, where it was, like, Daffy Duck speaking the 40s, Daffy speaking, and then it's just Mel Blank with a lisp. Yeah, pretty much. It's like, oh, that, that's not Daffy. It's, he's, he's not <laughs> even not trying. Daffy. However, in comparison to all that, the stuff he does in this movie is spot on. The stuff he does as Bugs, as Tweety, as Daffy, as all these characters, he's he's excellent here. And like we we we've talked about this on the show before about like okay the theory of when they recorded these or like when in comparison to some of the other stuff or what point he was working on this or how far back this goes. But um, yeah, sound good. Yeah, I think I think the the best thing I could find. There's like like one person said it was nineteen eighty six. So like, oh it, it was okay. recorded in nineteen eighty six. I'm thinking yeah, I think they recorded Quackbusters after that. That's a safe bet. Yeah. Like yeah eighty six times about a ride. Sounds like right on the cusp of which which um Tony Tony Anselmo. Um who voiced uh Donald, he talked about because for the Daffy Donald sequence, they record that together. There's footage of it, which is great because you don't see a lot of Mel Blank in the recording booth doing the voices and according to tony like oh mel had an oxygen tank he was not the best but as soon as they're like okay and record mel stood up from his chair went to the mic and just did it which yeah that sounds like him yeah that's just yeah a professional to the end essentially yeah and it's and again like we don't know for sure like when they recorded this we don't know for sure like if it was like like where in chronology with some of the other stuff, it's just it's. You, you said it here. He, they, they they got him at just the right point in time, that like you know it all just works perfectly. I've got some more general background that I found on this here of just like the movie that, that was being made. Um, Terry Gilliam was initially offered the job of directing this movie. Terry Gilliam, who did Time Bandits Brazil, Monty Python, uh, very dark movies, turned it down because he considered it. And I just read this in his voice and cracked up. Conceptually inauthentic to use the Looney Tunes genre and character staple as a springboard for the variation on the Howard the Duck story. It sounds like he's just ranting in a coffee shop to no one in particular. Like a Frank Zappa rant. Um, he's just stirring his coffee and, and like with a little uh, with like a spoon. Like, mm. God damn it, they're the, they're misrepresenting the Looney Tunes. I know. I've never done a Looney Tunes production. I know exactly how the characters should be done. Wait, what am I saying? Where am I? What is this? Why are you people? <laughs> and a big foot just crushes him. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we, we mentioned this, but there was a lot of disagreement in terms of the Looney Tunes characters of whether they wanted to be shown as their 40s selves or as the new designs or at least the Chuck Jones designs. 
Uh, Warner Brothers even said, hey, can we use the new design so we can merchandise this properly with the stuff we were doing now? The producers insist on having the characters looking the way they had looked at the time period when the film is set, the mid to late 40s. Dummy footage using the modern design was sent to the Warner Brothers for approval, while the animators used the period-appropriate designs in the actual film. So they sort of cheated a little bit to get Warner Brothers' approval. Because, But at the end of the day, it was the right idea. Just out of curiosity, I'd love to see that footage. Yeah. It like, I want to see the, the alternate universe. I want to see the alternate universe where, where, for some reason, in this 40s-looking setting, <laughs> they're looking like they're from the 60s. Yeah. Like, what? Not good. <laughs> um... The first test audience for this movie was mostly made up of 18 and 19 year olds who hated the movie. So that's, you don't, that's probably the wrong audience. Um, After almost the entire audience walked out of the screening, Zemeckis, who had final cut privileges, said he wasn't changing a thing. And thank God he didn't change a thing. Uh, Chuck Jones disavowed the movie forever after the release, complaining that there was something wrong with a movie where the live action hero got more sympathy than the animated cartoon started. Okay, hold on. Because he had this exact same criticism about Space Jam. And I'm beginning to think that maybe I'm just not going to agree with Chuck all the time. No. No. And I, I, I brought this up in the Space Jam episode. It's so unfortunate. He doesn't like the things that are clearly like... like, like We said there's a Space Jam episode. There are tons of Chuck Jones-styled Easter eggs in Space Jam. And in Roger Rabbit... Not as much Chuck-centric things, but there's Looney Tunes-centric writing the film that's reminiscent of the Rabbit of the Hunting trilogy or what have you. Right. So that sucks. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, we love these characters. Yeah, you know, this tribute you're doing to your characters, Chuck. I hate it. What? I hate <laughs> it. What? It's that fun. I equate Chuck, and then this is, you know, I. I this is a comparison really only I would make. I grew up, uh, one of my favorite authors growing up was Roald Dahl. Uh, ah, yeah. Wonderful children's author. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Matilda, the Pete, Jamie and the Giant Peach, all of those. And with every movie that was, a, that was released while he was alive, Roald Dahl probably has an interview saying how much he didn't like it. Because I think that was the case with both Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and The Witches. In both those cases, he was like, well, yeah, this uh, this isn't that great. And I think it's really just about, like, the problems he has are problems that none of us would have. And so it's like, you can be all right with liking something even if... It's like the Alan Moore thing as well. Like, Watchmen, all the adaptations are Watchmen are fantastic. And Alan Moore hates him because he's Alan Moore. Like, you can be all right liking something even if the creator is like, oh, I would have done it this way. Because the creator is going to do it his own way. But they did it this way and it was really good. And you know what? To be completely fair to Chuck... We you know it's like, oh, well, Alan did it right. I mean, you can say, okay, Chuck, show us what is doing the Looney Tunes right. And to be fair, he then did. He made those shorts in the 90s. He made the opening of Gremlins too. He was able to demonstrate this is how I feel the Looney Tunes should be. And in some of those examples, it's really good. Sometimes it's... Uh, it's not as good yeah. as we as we saw, but you know what? At, at least Chuck was able to like kind of speak for himself after yes. the movie came out. Like, no, this so I feel the Lutons are, and yeah. as an as an audience, you have the right to, to agree or disagree, and uh, that's totally fine. Um, one other background thing I want to say, <laughs> and this was what something that I noticed when we watched this the first time. 
because uh, I'll, I'll look on the IMDb page, and the single funniest thing I, I found out on this IMDb page is everything with us has to have a fucking connection to Sting. Um, we've we've gone over the the all for love thing. We've gone over. Have we gone over the um, apologies to Sting? We ran out of time. Oh, I, I, I think so. Yeah, we've yeah. we've gone over how miffed he is that every single thing he wrote for movies didn't end up on the. Well, this is one of those movies. Yeah. where he wrote something for it. <laughs> And it didn't end up going in because back when there was an earlier draft of this, when Roger still died, uh, Sting was writing a, a song, a Sting song, if you will, um, for this movie. Um, the song The Lazarus Heart, which um, it's a good song. And he wrote it because he was also supposed to be more involved with this movie, as we'll talk about later. Um, but he wrote it to be the ending song in this movie, is to sort of pan out as... Um, Roger dies, and I've listened to the song because obviously he released it on as the first track of Nothing Like the Sun. Um, it's a very cool song, and if you listen to the lyrics, it it still has some of those lyrics from the context of, you know, it, it starts with a death, and you know, and, and you know, it's fr- and it's about like a flower growing from the body of a guy that had been killed or something, and, and about everything carrying on and it was supposed to be like sort of an elegant that like you know you'd see the cartoon light carrying on at, in Roger's passing and it would have been cool but you see I kind of like the ending we have um I think you do too yeah I'm I'm sorry an ending where it's every single cartoon character in existence showing up and singing this happy song as our characters walk into the sun you can't get a better ending than that. I'm sorry. Right. Um, but yeah, no. The, the studio eventually is like, oh, we want the happier ending. And Roger lives. And uh, the song was deleted from the script and ended up on Sting's album again, which means yet another production that did not need the use of Sting. It happens to the best of us. Exactly. The best of us being Sting. One last point before we go into the actual movie. Because uh, we were doing... Because we do this usually... Uh, when we do a lot of our movie things, uh, where were the Looney Tunes in 1988? We've already sort of talked about this with Clackbusters, but where were they in 1988? So by this point in time, the Looney Tunes brand have reached a sense of normalcy on Saturday morning TV. Almost to a fault, the only new Looney Tunes productions were being being made weren't necessarily being made for the big screen, but more for the small yeah. screen, thanks in large part to television specials produced by either... The Chuck Jones Division or the Fizz Frilling Division. We talked we about that. We thought it would be a good idea. So, by this point, uh, Chuck and Frizz were very much still active in the animation industry, but it's around this point that a new generation, headed by Greg Board and Terry Lennon, start to take control of the LinkedIn's brand in a more different and contemporary direction, such as Daffy Duck's Quackbuster, such as Night the Living Duck, such as. Blooper, Bunny, Invader, the Bunny Snatchers, and yeah, all those. eventually. So the the 80s as a whole in in regards to Looney Tunes, it's a very much a traditional <clears throat> point in the Looney Tunes story because not only is the original talent dying out within this decade, Bob Clampett and Tex Avery would pass away, as well as Michael Maltese and John Dunn. <laughs> no, no, it's pronounced John. I know. John. I know. Why are we doing but the bear still those... pronunciation? John, John. I don't know. John, done. 
No, not the peacock pronunciation. <laughs> and uh, Daffy Duck's Questbusters is also available on Peacock. John Dunn. <laughs> Dot com. But those who are still in the business would either retire or die out before the decade was through, including the legendary Mel Blanc. So this film's representation of the Looney Tunes, especially for a 1940s setting, is in a way the last breath of the golden age of Warner Brothers animation, and in turn, those who helped create the characters. Yeah, and I think that it's it's important that we have a Looney presence in this movie, and that they're able to showcase themselves. Because again, it's a, we talk about the weirdness of this being a Disney production, and here are the Warner Brothers, and UPA people, and Paramount people, and yada yada. And for the Looney Tunes to be here and sort of play ball with all of these people, I think is very big for a lot of the unity message that I'm going to talk about when we go later into this. But I want to go into the first point of the actual movie analysis, because last week in our big... Uh, Looney Tunes on film bit, I kept asking a lot of the time, why are the Looney Tunes here? And that's what I'm going to ask for this one. Why are the Looney Tunes in Who Framed Roger Rabbit? And other than, you know, it's a cartoon world. You know, what, are the, what, what do they have to, to prove here? And I have a theory that the Looney Tunes, I think, are here because deep down... The filmmakers take a lot of influence with the Looney Tunes sense of humor in this movie. There are plenty moments in this movie that can have you go, oh, that's a Looney quip. Or, oh, I saw that in a Bugs Bunny cartoon once. Not getting the Looney Tunes in this movie, and like we said, they weren't able to get everyone. Thanks, MGM. Um... (laughs) But I feel if they couldn't get the Looney Tunes to appear in this movie, it it would be less. It would feel somehow like a lesser product if they weren't here. I I agree with that. I mean, it it really just enhances a lot of this world because, you know, it, it, it again, there's a unity sort of force with a lot of these characters. They're all fighting for the same things and they all want, you know, the same sort of rights for them themselves as cartoon characters. And yeah. So just to run down some of the Looney Tunes we see in this movie, because there are quite a few of them. Um, we have the, the sequence in the, um, you know, the Ink and Paint Club where um, Daffy Duck and Donald Duck are doing a little piano duel, which, um, as Marvin Acme says, that they never finish, which I like. Um, the Daffy that we see here is very much his 1940s self, very wacky, very quick, not the egotistical Chuck Jones version. It's very much the Bob Clampett, uh, Frank Tashman kind of Daffy. Mel is obviously still in great shape doing his voice. It sounds more natural compared to, honestly, some of the Donald track, which maybe just the audio quality wasn't very good. It, 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 there's a difference. There's a difference. understand what this duck is saying? <laughs> I've worked with a lot of wise clackers, but you are despicable. <laughs> the last time I worked with someone with a speech impediment. <laughs> this means war. 
because we also have uh, a very brief Yosemite Sam cameo uh, of, of him just sort of, um, you know, in, pe in pain. Ow! My biscuits are burning! Fire in the hatch! Oh, oh eat green hornetoes! That's smart! It, it, it's a very, a very brief cameo, as, as Oscar the Grouch would say. But um, it's odd hearing a modern Sam voice uh, from Alaska on 1948-era Sam. Um, it still works here, and he still has enough of a presence in this movie to really count. Yeah, it's not, it's not incredibly jarring for me. And I believe, and again, I read this like a form somewhere, so it's probably not true. I think when you first hear Sam, the yell that Sam does as he's shooting at Toontown, I think that's Mel. I could be wrong. Okay. I think, like, like that yells Mel, and then it goes into Joe Lasky doing the lines. Because I, for some reason, I don't Because I guess Mel could still yell like Yosemite Sam, but he can't, like, talk like Yosemite Sam by this yeah. point or something. And you know what? To be fair, it, it works. Yeah. Um, And I, I wrote down in the section a lot of just you know, ways where I can tell this movie was really influenced by, amongst other things, the Looney Tune mentality. For instance, the line that Judge Doom has, which obviously has been well reported on. The merry-go-round broke down. Quite a loony selection for a group of drunken reprobates. Um, obviously, that line would be done. They're having fun here. <laughs> yeah, they're having a lot of fun. Um, uh, as am I doing a surprisingly good Christopher Lloyd impression. Um, yes. all, this, all this time working with Brandon, and I've, I've picked it up. Um... But yeah, you have lines like that where obviously they wear their Looney Tunes on the sleeve. Uh, the way that Eddie tricks Roger into taking the drink and and going all over the place is right out of a Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck cartoon. And very Chuck Jonesian, if I might add. You do. I don't. You do. I don't. You do. You I don't. don't. You, you don't. I do. You. That's great. Oh my goodness. And yeah, it, it's perfect the way they both play that one. Um... I also love that, like, Eddie Valiant canonically got Yosemite Sam out of prison, and he sent him, in return, a gun. And, and no, an American justice decision is like, you, you can't just say, you, know, you hear on the news, Casey Anthony sends the judge that acquitted her a gun. You don't see that. No. No, Jordan, you wouldn't see it, because it would only be covered on... Peacock. <laughs> <laughs> it's true though I... <laughs> wow alright um yes the entire Toontown sequence has the pacing and feel of a 1940s Warner Brothers cartoon with the except also I would also say that it's paced like a Tex Avery cartoon but Warner Brothers Tex Avery we'll take ownership of him um there's so many tropes in here that are very loony like gravity not working properly a recurring love interest the lead character does not want uh, all these ways for our hero to fall into peril. All of these very quick gags. It feels very loony while still being very Disney. So it, it it's definitely a product of that influence. Uh, the Tweety appearance here. I love that. I love that Eddie Valiant knows Tweety. Like he looks up, he's like, "Oh hey, uh, hey Tweety." Like hey, Tweety. like they have a history of some sort as well. Oh look, pitties. Hi Tweety. This little pity went to market. This little pity stayed home. No. This little pity had roast beef. And this little pity has... Uh-oh, we're not a pities. What detective case did Eddie help with Tweety? 
like did Tweety in the night? 19- the case of the missing canary. Sylvester tried to eat him. I think either that or like Tweety trying to get a restraining order against Sylvester, so he hires Eddie to write up the document. <laughs> no, says here, Mister Puddington. <laughs> The fact that you can leave it to the imagination how they did meet is kind of awesome about this movie. And there's a lot of those in oh here. Oh my goodness, yeah. And then we have the Bugs and Mickey scene, which I know that you love. Yeah. Uh, and it is fucking phenomenal. Yes. <laughs> hey, what's up, Doc? Jumping without a parachute? Kind of dangerous, ain't it? Yeah. Yeah, uh, you could get killed, huh? You guys got a spare? Uh, Bugs does. Yeah. yeah, but I don't think you want it. I do, I do. Give it to me. Gee, uh, better let him have it, Bugs. Okay, Doc. Whatever you say, here's despair. Thank you. <laughs> ah, no! Ah! Oh, poor fella. <laughs> yeah, ain't I a stinker? Bugs is himself. Mickey plays off of him well. I think it's very telling that Mickey hands Bugs the gag, considering that Bugs is more known for that, and Mickey is... Um, kind of a nothing bur- burger of a character, I hate to say. At, at, around this time, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, um, yeah, yeah I, I just, it's, again, it's, I did, I, I did a comparison back to No Way Home, Spider-Man No Way Home, because I swear to God, it wasn't until I saw that movie and saw the Spider-Man come back, especially Toby come back, where I'm like, holy yeah. shit, I hadn't felt this, this joyous, since I first saw the Bugs and Mickey scene in this movie. It's just pure joy. Yeah. It's that thing where it's like, you would never expect this to happen in a million years. Warner Brothers. Oh, Warner Brothers was started out of former Disney employees who left the studio because they couldn't move with Walt yeah. to California. They would make shorts, not Funny shorts, might I add, of making fun of Disney. And they most of the time didn't work. I, I, I think it was like one or two we covered where it's like, okay, that's actually pretty funny. Some did. But for the most part, you know, I I think back to the um the Robin Hood cartoon they did. <laughs> that was like, clearly yeah. just a ripoff and it sucked. And like all this. Yeah. And, and Disney kind of having a fault too where, you know, like. For Pinocchio, they hired Mel Blanc to voice, uh, to voice, I, I think, the fish in Pinocchio. Oh, wait. The fish. Wait, uh, oh, no, no, it wasn't the fish. It was, um, the fox's assistant. Not the fish. Not the fish. The, the fox's, the fox's assistant. That guy. Who was not, as, as previously stated, a fish. No. Uh, but like, 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 he's mute in the movie, and uh, originally they hired Mel Blanc to voice him, and they're like, never mind. So they just got rid of Mel Blanc in their classic Disney movie. And, again, like, Disney hasn't been as hostile to Warner Brothers in their career because they're Disney. They didn't need to. So, just to see these two characters work together animated wonderfully, voiced fantastically. This is the best Bugs Mel has. I mean, Mel's later Bugs always sounded okay. It always sounded fine. It sounds great It sounds great. And it's, it's, yeah. it's wonderful to see them. And I love how, like, and, and, and yes, there's the, the, the infamous trivia that 
Warner Brothers agreed to it as long as Mickey and Bugs had the same screen time. And if you clock it, yeah. it's actually not 100%. It's not, no, but whatever. There's like a, a, a point two second shot in the beginning where it's like an older Bugs walking across the screen. And how they enter and exit the scenes a little bit. But it doesn't matter because it's great. It's just these two characters working it's off so each good. other, and it's it's by far one of my favorite scenes in cinema. It just provides so much joy. Whenever I see it on Twitter, I, I it, it's so funny. Right before we went on, I swear, last week, the universe has been like, you gotta cover Roger Rabbit? And I'm like, yeah, of course I'm gonna cover Roger yeah. Rabbit. And like, within the week, Two Twitter accounts that that the podcast follows or like I follow posted the bugs and Mickey clips. I'm like, God damn it! I have to retweet that now. And then, literally, as we're going on, YouTube added this movie as one of their free movie options you can watch on YouTube. So I'm like, yes. really? We're just about to take notes, and now Roger, okay, fine. I guess we'll do this. But, anyways. I freaking love this scene. Yeah. Yeah. That's all I want to say. It's so good. And it's, it, again, it's one of the many, like, Looney-inspired or Looney-adjacent things in here. The singing sword gag <laughs> is right out of not only Nighty Night Bugs, but also Swooner Crooner, because it's Sinatra. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Um, It's very, it's wonderful seeing all the Looney Tunes characters with all the animated repertoire in the end, because you can see uh, Bugs, Daffy, Sylvester, Tweety, Sam... Speedy, Wiley and Roadrunner, because Spielberg likes them. Uh, Hector the Bulldog, Foghorn, Marvin. It's it's a really nice it's it's a really nice menagerie of Looney characters within the many other cartoon characters. It's great. Just you like like Foghorn Leghorn sitting next to Goofy. It's like awesome, great. Maybe Goofy can show. I'd love to see those two in a cartoon. Oh my god. I would love to see Goofy show Foghorn how how to do actual funny slapstick. That'd be great. <laughs> yes, exactly. And obviously, I love that Porky gets to end the movie with a "That's all, folks," and it's yes. wonderfully done. Yeah, it makes me smile so wide. Okay, if, if, move along. If, if there's nothing else to see, if that's all, folks. Hmm, I like the sound of that. If, 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 if that's all, folks. <laughs> how else would you end the movie? Like, seriously, how, yeah. I mean, I I assume the first draft didn't have that. It's like, yeah, it's just a, a slow panning shot of Roger's dead body. And just, that's all. Sting music happening. Yeah, and just a little things I love about that. One, I love that Mel Blanc ends the movie. Yes. And two. Who else can end the movie? And two, um... So the music, the composer is, it's a Zemeckis movie, so it's Alan Silvestri who does the music. Great oh, yeah, job. Great. great. <laughs> I, I love watching the movie because he has a very distinct music style that's like, it's like, da da! You know, there's a way he does woodwinds and, and strings where it's like, oh, it's Back to the Future. Oh, yeah. No, it, it, it's, it's. You can clearly hear it. But I love because, like, okay, Alan Silvestri music, Alan Silvestri music. And it gets to that's all, folks, and it's archived audio, probably from a Carl Starl a Carl Stalling era short. And it's yeah. like, oh, and then Carl Stalling pops out at the very end. That's great. Because again, how could you not? How could you not? And of course, it ends with you know just and and the movie ends with both of their endings. 
<laughs> you know, it's like yes. Sporky, then bring Tinkerbell in, and we're out. And it's just, yeah. it's sends you home happy. And that, that's... Uh. It really is. Um, it, it utilizes so much loony energy so properly and so wonderfully. And, um, you know, and, and to answer the initial question, why are the Looney Tunes here? The Looney Tunes are here because, you know, this is a fantastic, all-reaching Looney, an not Looney, but like this animated world that has so many bounds and limits and what is the song that scores this world when Eddie first enters? Smile, darn you, smile, which is one of the second or third Looney Tunes ever made. This world is etched with what the Termite Terrace people had in mind. And it could not exist without the Warner Brothers unit. Yeah. So if they weren't here, it'd be a travesty. Yeah. Now, in addition to being a great animated movie, and, and you brought this up earlier when you talked about what what came forward in subsequent watches for you, Mark. Not only is it good in the Toontown segments, but it's also really good as a film noir film. Yeah. I mean, I I stole this idea from your friend Jack Jordan, so like, by all means, yes. you should explain it. Oh, me? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's your friend's idea. It's, it's not mine. Yeah, Jack, what he would do, because uh, Jack from RMR... He and I roomed together at college for a good semester, the best semester of my life. Um, and he and I would watch movies together basically every night. And it would be different stuff, that mostly stuff that I hadn't seen. And when we were working with neo-noir stuff or stuff that like could fit into the noir world, what he would do is if it would work with the color of the TV turned off, then it worked as a film noir film. And he made this work with both of the Tim Burton Batman films. Uh, subsequently, he, I think, turned Brandon onto it. And Brandon tried, and Brandon tried it with Dick Tracy, and it sort of worked. The one that he and I did together was Miller's Crossing, which honestly looked really good with, with black and white. But yeah, the whole thing is like, if it can work in black and white and still be a convincing noir or neo-noir, then it works. And... Well, this is a very colorful movie, and especially in the Toontown sequences, it hinges on so much wild color. It could work with this sort of, with the color turned off. And while I really don't want to, because it would lose a lot, I do think that it, it does pass that sort of test as film noir. So just some of the things that make this a really good film noir tribute to me, because, okay, film noir, for those of you who don't know, it is the 1940s movie-making trope where uh, sort of brought over from like a lot of European-centric noir, basically is French for black. So it's a lot of darker movies that emphasized black tones and just night and darkness. And it's basically just like people who do something immoral or like a detective over their head or someone who kills a man and has to get away with it. And it's all of these 1940s morality tales. And usually the lead is a guy. Sometimes it's a, it's a woman. But these movies had these femme fatale characters, these women, these women that you didn't know you could trust and that most of the time you couldn't trust because, ha-ha, men were making these movies. And these film noir films, a lot of them really hold up. I mean, Double Indemnity, stuff like that. But, like, good noir, obviously, is the backbone of this movie. Like, the, the very beginning, the music and the font that this movie starts with are pure noir. The little bass, like, doom, 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 doom. That's, like, very noir. The little 
font is great. It's it's already getting you in the mindset of okay, this is like a film noir film. It's gonna have animated characters and shit, but like it's gonna make you feel like something out of a Humphrey Bogart film or a or a Gary Cooper film or something. And yeah, the very first shot we see of this movie of Eddie Valiant at the end of a very long pan in the film studio, that is our noir hero. He's shown in profile with a cigarette in his mouth, with a hat on, looking somber. It's like a, like the Bogarts of yore. But yes, yeah, so much of this movie feels like a 1940s film. The costume design, the set direction, the world building, it feels very colorfully 1940s, and it doesn't feel too anachronistic. I think what needs to be remembered is that this came out a year after another 1920s, not noir rip, but a 1920s crime caper that had a lot to do with early filmmaking that was The Untouchables. And that movie, which Bob Hoskins was going to be in The Untouchables, to be fair, um, <laughs> they used him as a decoy to, to get uh, De Niro for more money. And then when they when he um, when they told him he didn't get it, they said um, he said, "Good. Is there any other parts you want me to not do for you? You want to pay me for?" Yeah, because because Hoskins got he he held, he held like twenty thousand or fifty thousand for like, hey, thanks. Here's a bunch of money. <laughs> yeah, here's. Here's, here's some money. Look like you got the part. Um, okay. I'll do that thing. Um, but yeah, no, it, it feels very 1940s. And one of my favorite bit, like sets in this movie is the Terminal Station Bar. Where, you know, it's right out of a noir film. The lighting in it, the way it shakes that the train comes, the way it feels dirty and has all these holes and crannies in it. It feels very lived in and very much like something out of a 40s film. And I, I love it whenever we get to see more and more crevices of it. And it, it, this is very an, a well-organized and well-stocked world. And there's people that would fit in these sort of places. Um, and what's, what's most noir-like is that this has a very standard noir plot, possibly owing to the Chinatown script that was factored into this one. You know, guy uncovers an affair, makes it public, has to vindicate both parties when a body turns up complete with the rail industry being upended by a corporation. This is something you find in a lot of noir films in the fifth of the 40s. Um, all right, this is a small bit that barely even belongs in this section because because this is 1947, Benny the Cab, as he's driving the uh, Roger and, and Eddie along, brings up how well the Dodgers are doing. Yeah, they are doing really well in 1947. Their second baseman sure is rad, but he'd get his own movie eventually. Um, the most noir-like scene in the movie is the scene in Maroon's office when Eddie comes back in later and tries to get out the evidence from him and, and interrogate him. There's some amazing film noir tone and suspense in this movie, in, in this scene. And it's, it's very much like, you forget that you're watching like a, a movie with cartoon characters in it. It's so seriously done and so tense. And it's so good. And then ultimately, and you wouldn't think this, but Judge Doom's plan to tear down Toontown for the freeway industry is pretty far for the course if you've seen a lot of film noir films, especially Chinatown, neo-noir. It's always something corrupt that takes out creativity and replaces it with industry and business to, well, pave paradise and put up a parking lot. That is the eternal enemy of the free thinker. And Eddie, despite falling on hard times and nearly drinking himself into obscurity in this is a free thinker because of his generosity for tunes which is something that's referenced a lot i do like how 
how Bob Hoskins plays Eddie Valiant. Just how he presents, oh, he's incredible. How how he presents the character. Um, I know a lot of people joke about because um, he has that voice, right? That like. The, the heavy New Yorker accents, and it's like, oh, wait, he does the same voice yeah. in Super Mario Brothers, what's up with that? And like, okay, yeah, that's dumb, but it really works here. Oh my god. Yeah. It works so well, that when I first saw an interview with him, probably on the DVD, but probably on YouTube, I'm like, wait, he's British? <laughs> yes, that caught me off guard too, actually. No, he's he's really good. And he's he's one of the best parts of this movie, and like he 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 keeps this movie ticking so well. Um, I have a section in in here called "What This Movie Does That No Movie Had Ever Done Before," because there's a lot, and it's all pretty important stuff, even like 24, 25 years later. What I have here is is the um, from the no, from the IMDb trivia. I have the fact that Richard Williams with this movie set out to break three rules that previously were conventions for combining live action and animation. First, to move the camera as much as possible so the tunes didn't look like they were just pasted on flat backgrounds, so they have depth. Yes, I love this. Second, use lighting and shadows to an extreme that was never before attempted. And third, have the tunes erect with real-world objects and people as much as possible, and vice versa. All of this is present in the first five minutes of this movie, which are some incredible five minutes, beginning with this opening Roger and Herman cartoon. Like, Oh my gosh, yeah. There are many times that in this that Richard Williams' work uh, with the animation reminded me of some of his stuff for Thief and the Cobbler, but there are some angles and some shots, especially with the, with the black and white tile flooring and the depth and, and perspective that gave me the sort of vibe of a lot of the wilder moments in Thief and the Cobbler. Also, fun fact... A friend of mine, uh, my friend Moss, will never finish this movie because they were watching this movie and had an edible, a really strong one, and the oh, Herman God. cartoon really fucked him up. <laughs> oh, shh. And so, because I posted on, on Facebook, like, uh, okay, I defy you to name anything wrong with this movie. And Moss went, actually, I, I think that the, um, the, the, I took an edible and the, the Herman bit at the beginning made me really nauseous. And I'm like, I mean, internally, I'm like, is that the movie's fault? Or is that the strength of the yeah. edible? I'm going to go with the edible, yeah. man. I mean, I mean, he could just put on Planet Earth and would have the same result. <laughs> Can you imagine doing an edible with doing an edible and then watching Planet Earth and then eventually just get to the point where Richard Attenborough where David Attenborough starts talking to you? Why are you taking drugs and watching these? There are animals that need your help. Why are you tripped out on the couch, Moss? I know your name. We all know about you in the animal kingdom, and we want you to die. Um. <laughs> oh God. Um. But yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah. There's tons of, of, of perspective shots yeah. in, in this opening short, which kind of, which kind of tells the audience, like, wait a minute. It's presenting itself like, at the very beginning of the short. It presents itself like a normal cartoon. You know, they're like too yes. crazy. Maybe the shadows are a bit more defined. And then once stuff goes crazy. Oh my God, yeah. It's like, oh, oh, wait a minute. This shot isn't usually, this type of perspective yeah. isn't usually in a cartoon. This type of, 
of of fluidity in the animation isn't typically what's in a cartoon. Yeah, and then you get a, a realization of, oh, okay, so this is like, it's going to be a cartoon with a lot of more, more. I don't say this as a negative, but with a lot more effort put in yes, than, typ- than typical animated movies. Yeah, and there's so much in this opening cartoon bit that works in terms, again, depth, perspective, design, details. It's a fantastic cartoon. A lot like what we were talking about with the Pink Panthers um, uh, openings last week. It's as if this movie started with a cartoon short of its own. And then you follow that with the moment where the take cuts and we see how seamless the live-action world works with the animated one. And you see all the depth in things and all of the... All the other things you see the, the animated props being handled by the live action actors you see all of this that didn't seem possible and it's happening seamlessly and right there you realize okay all of the rules are out the window this is just something incredible yeah because because something to remember is that richard talks about this one the behind the scenes where he's like yes there's been live action animation before but you know when when an actor is looking at the at the cartoon, it feels like they're not really looking at the cartoon; they're just looking right through them. Yeah. So what he wanted to do is make sure that the actors were intensely focused on thin air, and you know, and what they would do, which is to go over it, is they had rubber dolls. Mm-hmm. Don't take that the wrong way. They had rubber dolls, and they would just do the scene with the dolls so that the actor could know where the character was supposed to be. Then they would shoot it without the dolls, but have professional actors, made very clear, actors, actors. read the lines off screen. Yes, read the lines <laughs> off screen so that they aren't going completely mad. And like, what gets what gets brought up over and over again in the mind the scenes is we essentially shot an invisible man movie. That's what we did essentially. Cause and yeah. Yeah, that's what Spielberg would say. Like, well, okay. Invisible Man 2, we did it. Yeah. Essentially. And yeah, it, it's just like like they went to mime school to make sure that when the actors are lifting up a character or punching a character, there's weight behind it. Yes. And they put so much work into making sure that you know that they're that while Gene Kelly dancing with Jerry was great for the forties, it's now forty five years later, and we have to show improvements. And they yeah. did. And one of the best things this movie does is filming the movie, knowing where the animated characters would be, and fitting them seamlessly into things. Bob Hoskins and company, the whole whole live action cast do a great job acting alongside nothing. And it's not treated like a novelty. I mean, Bob Hoskins has, has said contemporarily, oh yeah, it fucked me up. You know, I'd, I'd go around, you know, I couldn't take a movie for another year because, you know, I was looking around and I'd see cartoon squirrels and shit. I had to retrain myself. You know, I thought I was going fucking bonkers. You know. After doing it for six months, so <laughs> for 16 hours a day, I sort of... Um... Lost control of it, and I had sort of weasels and rabbits popping out of the wall at me, you know? Actual quote. <laughs> and my children hated me. My child, I said... Because they would see the movie. I say to my son, I say, why won't you work with me? And he says, because oh, you work with Bugs Bunny, and you didn't tell me. I'm like, I didn't know I needed to tell you. Fucking hell, I used to do Shakespeare. You ever seen that? <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, I love that line so much. The, the interview where, where, where like, um, he yeah. talks about um, getting the getting the role of Mario. It was like, 
he bites the TV. He's like, that's you. I'm like, okay. Fuck, I was in Lear. <laughs> to which I quote tweeted it as on the podcast Twitter and went like, like, oh, oh, this is what he said with the Roger Rabbit. It's like, yeah, they showed me the character and they're like, where's Roger? He's like, oh, that's him. Fuck. Fucking hell. <laughs> I used to do actual pictures. Yeah. I was in the Mona Lisa. I used to do shit like that. Yeah. What happened to me? He was in, um, he was lip syncing to 1920s, uh, I'll mention that a little BBC. later, actually. Okay, um, never mind, never mind. I remember. Yeah, that was how he got his start, basically. Um, but yeah, um, just lots of acting alongside nothing treated really well. Another thing, that, that because this is a touchstone film, the bouncer at the door calling Eddie a wise-ass. Cartoon characters didn't curse, especially the one, you know, except for the ones drawn by uh, Ralph Bakshi. But this, you know, it's like, okay, now the cartoon <laughs> characters are cursing. In fact, in an earlier version of the film, uh, Roger even gets to say hell at one point, but it was neutered for the final cut. Mm. Yeah, um, I also find interesting how that's an originally, original drawn character says why is ass. Not a single no. pre-established cartoon says a curse word. No, because what what kind of cartoon character like Bugs Bunny or Porky Pig would say something like jackass? Son of a bitch, son of a bitch, son of a bitch, a gun. <laughs> you thought I was going to say son of a bitch, didn't you? <laughs> or bitch. Um, there is something cool that this movie does. The moment, and this is one of the, the the coolest thing this movie does. I think the moment where Roger has the photos, he's crying over the photos of his wife having an affair with Marvin Acme, and his wife. They're literally playing patty cake together, and he moves the pictures. He has like three or four pictures that create like the whole like timeline of what happened. And he moves them together so fast, it's the same effect of frames being run together. He's almost animating them. That is a oh new God. That is a new level. Animated creation flipping reality together like a cartoon. That's fantastic. That's, That's just, again, the ultimate, like, we love animation so much, we're going to make a joke about making animation. <laughs> and it works. Yeah. It's wild. I mean, there's so many jokes about the actual nuts and bolts of animation. Like, dip is, is the materials used to wipe ink off of a, of a frame. And the title is literally who framed Roger Rabbit. So they have a lot of fun with the, the ins and outs of animation. And I kind of love it. I mean, every Acme, Marvin Acme, Acme, the common tools used by the Roadrunner, which are used by Wally Coyote in every Warner Brothers cartoon, which again proves my point that the writers really... Really love Warner Bros. animation. Yes. <laughs> and then, of course, in terms of what this movie did that nobody had ever done before, Toontown. Making, doing this whole, like having Bob Hoskins be a live-action cartoon character in this Toontown scene, running from all of these animated obstacles. I still get chills when we go into the tunnel and go in there. It's insane, but it's oh, wonderful. Man. I love it. It's, it's, and it's delectable. Yeah. It's so much fun. Um, I love that uh, Lena Hyena was one of my mom's favorite characters. She just loves oh, yeah. Lena Hyena. Uh, yeah, just like Red Riding Hood. She has, she has to have a type. <laughs> yeah. Uh, mm, yeah. And um, and it's June Foray voicing Lena, which is great. I love that. It's awesome that, that, yeah. that June, June gets, June gets a, a line in this. Um, and it's, yeah, again, it's just, 
It's insane. And in fact, what I did, when they cut to the wide shot, I paused it this time because I, I always just yeah. watch the scene. And I, I paused it. On the... I never... I, I swear, I've seen this movie millions of times. I've never noticed this. I don't know what they're doing. There's a scene where, like, it's Snow White leading the evil queen somewhere. Yeah. Like they go into a building or something. I'm like, huh. what the shit? Snow White's in this? It's cool. like, okay. I mean, it awesome. is 1947 the, the one, or the, the one yeah. yeah, the one who started it all. Makes sense. And, um... Yeah, just just little things. Um, like when we get into Toontown, Mickey's orphans are running around. A bunch of Mickey's orphans. The three little pigs are there. Yeah. Um, just every single. Uh, it, it, sorry, you think? Oh, this is the big cartoon scene. We're in Toontown, and it's not. That's what I love. It's like, oh my god, this is the big holy shit. Here's all the money on the screen moment. We're in the cartoon world. And then you get to the ending, and it's like, oh, wait, no, no, this There's is more. the money shot. Yeah. This is the money shot. It's but, great. um, yeah, I love, I love Toontown. I love, I, and I love how, like, there's moments of the actors dealing with animated props, such as, you know, there's the scene where, the, where they're at the murder scene of Marvin Acme, and the cops are just messing with I love the that Acme scene. products, which is also a, a setup for, the climax, yes, because he uses the same items in to fight Judge Doom, like the hole and the mallet, and this is the only place I could think we're to talk about it. But whenever Roger would use a live action item, that was a robot. Yeah, they had to make animatronics essentially to bash to destroy a plate or yeah. to to mess with a curtain or to all the stuff because while computers existed early computers existed in the uh, in, in, in the movie they had to go practical mm -hmm. which is insane for a movie like this yeah it's like yeah we're, we're gonna do a live action animated movie without the assistance of computers and it's I gonna look as good as it does I love that this was before the CGI boom. Because then they would have ruined it. And I think something has to be said about you know Richard Williams and Amblin using their resources because there were live action animated movies after this. The speed of, of Ralph Bakshi, Cool World. Oh god, that was in a way that was his Roger Rabbit, and that movie's a trip. I don't know if it's. It's it, it's something, but it's it's not good. It's not good. It's done on Roger Rabbit, and it's very clearly obvious that Brad Pitt is not talking to uh, Kim Basinger nope. as a yeah. Like it, it it took skills to get to get to look this good, yeah. which is why it's shocking how in the test animation they nailed it with the test animation. Yeah, it's like damn, that's lucky. <laughs> that that's just luck. It's like first go. Oh look, we did it! Oh, Shit. all right. Okay. Let's do the movie now. Well, what? Well, well, yeah, legit. I, I was watching behind the scenes. That's essentially what they said. Like, okay, we know we can do it. We just have to like do it. Essentially, we have, we have to make the damn thing. Yeah, we have to put even more work into it. Such as incorporating IP of other studios. Yes, and. <laughs> I want to make this clear. We are living in the age right now where pretty much every big box office film and property revolves around pre-existing IPs and hitting beats that have already been hit. 
And it's very interesting to see a movie have this many IPs and not feel completely soulless and, you know, unoriginal and not like they're trying to hump their already their pre-existing property, like a lot of what Disney does right now. So, yeah, we'll just talk about just how a lot of these IPs don't wound this film and actually make them better. So, first of all, and we see this in the first 10 or so minutes, uh, a, a, a Dumbo jump scare where he sort of flies in front of the window and scares the shit out of Eddie. <laughs> and Maroon also basically notes here, I got him on loan from Disney, which is an odd line. A film that seems to exist in another world from Disney with these new characters, and Disney is just as big a force here. Yes, and and he also has... The very next line is, yeah, I got him and half the cast of Fantasia. Yeah. And what I love about that line, and it's something you don't realize until when you're an adult or a Disney adult. No, no, no. All insufferable. Um, What I love about this line is that it's historically accurate. Um, Dumbo and Fantasia, while they're these big classic films today, as they deserve to be, at the time of their release, due in part to World War II, they bombed. They, they failed. They, they didn't bring in the money. So this idea that in the 80s, a time where Disney wasn't doing so hot themselves, that they can make a joke like, yeah, you know, yes, when it's possible that when these two films failed, we would loan them to a different studio. It's something you would never see from them today. They would never make a self-referential joke today about their, like, I don't know, their live-action remakes or something. No, they would never do that. You know, That's not funny you know, enough. Yeah, there, there wouldn't be a line. There wasn't a line in Ralph Breaks the Internet during the princess scene where they're all together. And then there's just um, Lily James comes in like, hey, guys. They just look over like, who are you? Yeah, there's not a bit in that movie where Merida just wants... Talks about wanting Bob Chapek's head on a spike. Um, <laughs> although she should have. Um, okay, um, this is just this is just some some cool stuff that I noticed. Just as Eddie passes down the stairs out of Maroon's office, we see a frog that is meant to be Michigan J Frog, and then the dancing brooms from Sorcerer's Apprentice, complete with a saxophonist playing their theme, followed by one of the hippos from Fantasia. So already they're they're pumping up Fantasia and thing and other. 40s stuff like that now the uh, the sequences where we have daffy and donald and subsequently bugs and mickey yes they are existing properties but they are doing something we will never see them do in, in their own films in their own networks they are acknowledging each other talking to each other fraternizing with the enemy if you will and <laughs> trading blows amicably same with bugs and mickey later on you've never seen them do this in each other's cartoons you never see them even meet in each other's cartoons but putting them together is something that had never been done and that couldn't be replicated. They're not promoting each other's cartoons either, even if this is a Disney film. They're just, this is a place where they both can exist at the same time together yeah. and bounce off of each other. And that's cool as hell. And, and you know, they, they wouldn't do something as subversive and as cool now, that, I mean, with, without having something that took away the substance. Believe me, studios especially Warner Brothers, have tried. Yeah. Twice, actually. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, with, with the, the people who made this movie, in fact. <laughs> one Some of them, of them yeah. But it's one of those things, well, it's one of those things like, oh, they, they, they couldn't do this today. You're right, because they already did it. Yeah. Like, if now 
They're like, hey, you know, like as a way to market some, I don't know, some like virtual reality thing. Hey, Disney Warner signed a deal. You can now watch a virtual reality movie where it's Daffy Donald, Mickey, and Bugs sitting at a round table talking about their lives. Yeah. See, they're together. No. You have to be like, oh, I saw it already. They already have this. It's already pretty great. Already yeah. had it. Sorry. Um, and what they do with Betty Boop is done for a reason. People online have theorized, and I think this is probably the way it was read in, that Boop is the main indication that tunes are supposed to re- represent people of color in pre-Civil Rights America. Betty Boop says she stopped getting jobs after cartoons c- turned to color, and Betty herself is based off of black women of the 1920s, which is why it's so important that Eddie has this connection with her and other tunes. He sticks up for people in need, a lot like Bogart and Casablanca. And... Basically, giving the tunes their own place is a way of sort of extending the civil rights-y sort of equality message that a lot of this film has without always meaning to. Yeah, yeah. The Ink and Paint and Paint Club is uh, essentially what people said is like, oh, this is like, this is what it would be like in the 20s. So there would be bars where black performers can, they can, they can do their show, they can present on a stage in front of white people, but they can't see the show. The black people can't be in the audience. They only have to perform on the stage. Yeah. That's why, you know, the, the the penguins of Mary Poppins, they're 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 doing they're, they're waiters. Yeah. Because they haven't been discovered yet because nineteen forty seven, which is cute. Mary that's nice. But yeah, no, I really like that that's a theme we have here. I also think it's cool that like because it's Disney, they have times to play in clips from a goofy film just as set dressing. Um, that's nice. Yeah, that's nice. But the big one for me is seeing all the cartoon characters at the end in solidarity because it's insanely heartwarming. It represents a unity in the common love of entertainment and humor. It's the biggest pro-animation message ever that the animated world is their own and should never be dictated by live-action morons with suits. And Hollywood never ever did until the 2010s when the same studio helped produce the movie in a time of crisis, Greenlit live-action remakes of their animated films because they felt they were in a time of crisis. And they're still the top movie studio in the whole business, and they haven't really suffered that much. Anymore. Disney's, which, which uh, I, I'll just say this about the live-action remakes, um, I, I just know I wouldn't like them, so I don't watch them. That's an option you have, folks. If, if yeah. you... Don't like these live action remakes. Don't pay money. Yeah. Don't acknowledge their existence. The originals are there for you to watch. And this is very important. If you don't watch them, then Disney will eventually get the message to not make more of them. Yeah. And like, and I know what you're thinking, but it's my job. No, it's I not. have to review these movies no, 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 Mark, in order Mark, to blah blah Mark, blah. Mark. But Mark. you know what I think? Mark. And he stopped. Mark. I'll stop. He's not listening. It's okay. I know. I know. Anyway, performances. Yes, performances. All right. We've already talked a little bit about Bob Hoskins because he's incredible in this. But Bob Hoskins is Eddie Valiant. He was obviously not the first choice for Eddie Valiant. Spielberg's first choice for Eddie was naturally Harrison Ford. The official quote was, <laughs> his pride was too high. Yes, because when I see Harrison Ford, <laughs> I think prideful. Yeah, I'm Eddie Valiant. I'm looking for the tune that killed my brother. <laughs> to be fair, Ridley Scott would then use Harrison in Blade Runner, so 
he can do noir. He can. But that's that's like early '80s Harrison Ford. That's that's it's like, hey, what can I help you with? It, it's no, no, because no, the, the actually no, it's the um, the the narration brothers. I was concerned that she might have been a rapper, and then I went looking for her because am I done yet? Or they're not gonna put this in the movie? Okay. I didn't know that she was a rebel yet, but then the old Betty was with the Watch the director's cut of that. Um, yeah, no, so Harrison Ford said no. So many people were considered... Robert Redford, Sylvester Stallone, Jack Nicholson, all considered. Um, Kurt Russell, Robin Williams, Steve Martin. Pretty much every leading man in Hollywood were, was considered for this. Um... Bill Murray famously turned down the role of, of Eddie Valiant, was famously distraught when he found out he was he missed out a role in a movie like this, hence Space Jam. Uh, Eddie Murphy was also offered the fo- role and turned it down. That wouldn't have worked. Robin Williams would not have worked either. Because I'm thinking like 80s Robin Williams. We know now he can play straight. Yes. We know but this. I don't think he could have in this era. Not, not in 80s. No, that would have been... You have literally two cartoon characters the entire movie. Yeah. That wouldn't really work. But yeah, but they eventually went with Bob Hoskins. Bob Hoskins was no stranger to this kind of period piece. He's done uh, Pennies from Heaven for the BBC about 10 years earlier. That was one of his breakout roles. Uh, Cinephiles may know the film version they did a couple years later featuring Steve Martin. Christopher Walken plays a tap-dancing pimp. It's weird. Um, <laughs> Bob Hoskins is obviously perfect for this role. The moment he snaps at the bar patron, shoves him against the counter, smashes an egg over his mouth, he absolutely nails it. He brings this kind of acting to he brings this kind of acting to this movie about cartoons, which is insane. And then he's just on the whole time. He may look like he's not caring, but he's really wired in. He's great. Yeah, and in every interview Semekis has done since the movie came out, he's he's always praised Hoskins as being one of, if not the thing. It gives Roger Rabbit its sense of, of believability. Because, like, if Bob didn't believe the rabbit's there, the audience won't. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, I also love how dedicated he is to his big cartoon character moment in the climax where he's making all the weasels laugh and he's going big and hammy and breaking things over his head and everything. He's wonderful there. And and the little big kiss he gives uh, Roger at the end. Oh, that's that's great. Um, but I love it in that scene. You see, I, I pause to see what the other ones are. It's like Mickey's melody. One of them is like is like Jolson. I'm like, yes. oh no, 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 no. <laughs> that 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 would have been awkward. <laughs> no. Ooh. I was like, ah, oh, this is really really good. What? Well, no, no, don't go for the acme. Neil, Di- what's Neil Diamond no, doing here? Don't. Hello, I'm here to <laughs> help you out. <laughs> I've got a song to sing. <laughs> it just hits Jolson, and then Neil Diamond comes out of the machine like, hey. I heard I was called. It's the 80s, and my career's not doing that well. But tonight. <laughs> oh, how I missed this bit. Um, oh, man. But tonight, I will apologize. <laughs> It's one of my favorite bits we've ever done. Um, oh, man. Kathleen Turner. Kathleen Turner plays Jessica Rabbit. Amy um, Irving does her singing voice. Amy Irving was, I believe, married to Spielberg at the time. Kathleen Turner went took an uncredited role as Jessica Rabbit. If it's not clear to anyone else out there, aside from the obvious romancing the stone thing, 
Kathleen Turner basically got this job because of the movie Body Heat, which is a terrific neo-noir where she played the femme fatale and was awesome in it. She does a really good job. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, and if you uh, if you don't want to be bummed out, um, they did a, a... Disney Plus had this prop show on Disney Plus. Yes. It, it, it's good. I like it. They did a Roger Rabbit episode, and the guy interviewed Kathleen Turner and Charles uh, Fleischer, who are mm. next. Um... Eh, that's just kind of sad because like it'll, it'll cut to like a clip from Roger Rabbit of Jessica Rabbit sounding sultry and sexy, and then you cut back to Kathleen Turner now. And it's like, <laughs> she sounds worse than my Whoopi Goldberg impression. Yeah, she. she How long we have Kathleen Turner on the show today? Kathleen, how are you? <laughs> That's great. Do you have anything to say about the Holocaust and or Porky Pig? <laughs> oh, man. Do you think Whoopi stood up and cheered at the end of this movie? And I love Porky. Yeah! There's my ham! <laughs> Charles Fleischer. Charles Fleischer. As Roger Rabbit and a bunch of other people. Before they landed on Charles Fleischer, Paul Rubens was considered for the role. Eddie Deason was always was also a favorite to do it. That would have been something. <laughs> Mandark is Roger Rabbit, sure. Mandark. Aha, uh-huh. Eddie, they're coming after me. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they went with the right guy. Um, the one thing I will say about Charles Fleischer, he doesn't have Mel Blanc's range as both Herman and Roger. They sound like his regular voice. But his Herman voice is really well defined. His Roger voice sounds like it's been a, a flagship character for years. He has a lot of voices he's able to do. Um, he's a very good voice acting talent they were able to really rely upon. Yeah, and Charles was able to come back for all, for a lot of Roger Rabbit stuff. Good. He he was down, which which I I don't know where else we would cover this, but did, like do you want do you want to talk about Roger Rabbit's influence after the film, or should we say that for like near the end? Maybe that should be toward the end. Yeah, okay. All right. Yeah, yeah, so Charles had a lot of stuff for Roger that we'll get into later. It's funny but, because um, I, I I found out about him um, because Robin Williams, the, the Oscars after this one, did a whole bit where he was talking about the importance of cartooning in, in, in this movie. And he, he did a bit with Charles Fleischer, and it was weird because Charles oh. Fleischer is weird. But um, it was the two of them bouncing off each other and doing voices. And I think he was doing his Roger voice. Robin was doing, I want to say, Pepe Le Pew or somebody. And it was just really cool to see them working together. Thank you very much. You know, Robin, because of the amazing success of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, tunes are now being taken seriously in Hollywood, and soon tunes are going to be offered serious dramatic roles. That's right. They'll be doing a sequel starring Roger Rabbit and Mickey Mouse in Rain Mouse. I gotta get my underwear. I gotta get my underwear. Take it. You don't understand, Mickey. I gotta go to Oakenburnet. There is no. There is no. There is no. Came out in Toontown. And if we do that well, we can also see maybe cartoon characters on Broadway. Elmer Fudd in Streetcar Named Desire. Stella. Mickey Mouse will be able to explore the character parts. Hello, my name is Mickey Mouse. Welcome to the Mouse Club. M-I-C, see what I mean? K-E-Y, why? Because I said so. Send me that clip. I, I it's love the one that, that. It's the one that has Rob, the one that has Robin Williams in the Mickey Mouse um, hat. And he's making just he's doing riffing the whole time. He comes out in the Mickey Mouse ears and he goes, "Good evening, I'm Dan Quayle." It's uh, <laughs> great. And uh, I'm I'm presuming this is before Robin got pissed off at Disney. My son, the, the, this is pre-Aladdin. 
Yes, this is pre-Aladdin. Um, right, right. Yeah. Anyways, so the MVP. Christopher Lloyd, the MVP, yes. Um, it's funny. Tim Curry screen-tested for the role of Judge Doom. Apparently, he scared the shit out of the producers, which is also <laughs> why he lost the role of the Joker. Tim Curry is the only actor to believably lose separate iconic roles for being too good at playing them. Oh my gosh. Um, it says here that Sting was considered for the role of Judge Doom, possibly when he was still writing the song for the film. Uh, Roddy McDowell was also considered. Same with Christopher Lee. Both of them would have been cool. Really cool, actually. John Cleese expressed interest in playing Judge Doom. Steven Spielberg and Robert Zemeckis refused, saying that nobody would take a former member of Monty Python seriously as a sadistic villain. Wait till you hear his opinions on trans people. Ooh. He is not a fan. And his show about cancel culture. What are you doing? <laughs> Come on, man. Be nice like Eric and Michael. Seriously. They're great. Seriously, what the fuck's up with these legacy, mostly comedy, actors are like, I'm in the 12 years of my career. You know what I'm going to do at the very, very end of it? Slag off trans people? Yeah, like, like be against good-hearted people. Fuck it. I'm going to It's like your Dave Chappelle. Career. You have this landmark career with comedy. You do all these great things. Uh, it's like, oh, I'm on the top of my career. What do I do now? Just comes up with the mic. I don't like trans people. They're not good. If I, if I wanted to talk to a trans person, I wouldn't talk to a trans person. They're not good. Anyway, my friend Dave Grohl told me to be here. And why are all these people crying? What's going on? <laughs> oh, his drummer died? Shit, I thought he was the drummer. All right. <laughs> anyway, trans people, that's why we're all here. Uh, I, I will forever not... Dude, it, it, it took me until the day of... Like, 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 the entire time, it's like, oh, hey, Dave's going to be here. I'm like, why the fuck is Dave Chappelle going to be here? And then saying he went, so I hosted SNL. I'm like, oh, fuck. I didn't SNL with them, and they thought that it would be cool to have me back here. Yeah. That's a good enough reason? Anyways. Anyway, um, Christopher Lloyd is amazing in this movie. He is so good at acting cartoonish, even if you're still thinking that he's human. The turn from sniffing the record to the facial expression change of, he's here! That's not human. That's not normal. And he does it so well. There's so many little moves that he does in this that are perfect. Um, I I think this is his best performance because it, it, he's almost different from anything else he's ever done. Because he's known for Doc Brown. He's known for, you know, Professor Plum or whatnot. But he's a, almost a completely different performance. And he said he really enjoyed it, too. Yeah. Um, I, I love the fact that in the original plans, and this went all the way to toy manufacturing, apparently, originally he was going to have a cartoon, um, like vulture yeah. on his arm, like a crow or something. And they're like, yeah, that's going to be very hard if he's constantly moving. Yeah. So it's like, okay, fine, we'll get rid of the crow. And then sure enough, it's like, oh, shit, we didn't tell the toy people. We weren't using the crow anymore. Oh, well, it's fun. But, um, you know, it's just like little things. Like, like he chose to not blink. Yes. Not even in a cool Michael Caine way. No, just in a... You can't blink, Kenny. You're not supposed to blink. <laughs> but, um, you see, sir, I... I can't blink. Why not? Look down. Oh, 
Hi there. <laughs> I didn't Hi, notice no. there was a bloody person <laughs> down there. <laughs> down there. This has illuminated everything for me. Wait, what's next? That bear over there, is, it, is he going to be a person? Oh, hello, hello, hello. I say. How are you doing? I'm, I'm fine, Michael. Um, can we just go back to the scene? Michael, oh, my we need to talk to you about something. <laughs> That's great. By the way, one last Christopher Lloyd thing I have. Um, my friend Chris, um, who is a fan of the um, the show, probably listening to this one. Hey, Chris. Um, he got to meet Christopher Lloyd really recently. And apparently he was a sweetheart. Chris, Chris Lloyd's apparently just a really nice guy in person. He, he loves people who love his work. And, you know, he's a, he's a pretty cool guy. But he got a picture with him. And he used a little Snapchat filter that gave Chris Lloyd bug eyes. And oh. I think Chris got it. Like, oh, yeah, I see what you're trying to do there. Yeah. Uh, Chris, I think. Uh, Chris Lloyd as well as, as, as Chris, my friend Chris. Both Chris's here know exactly what's going on. And I dig that. Some odds and ends in the cast. Um, the director in the opening that berates Roger is played by mega producer Joel Silver, which is pretty amusing. Yeah, because uh, apparently that that was a practical joke on Michael Eisner. Because they both yeah. worked at Paramount, yeah. and Michael didn't like Joel. So they're, they're doing the movie, and you know, then Samantha's is like, hey, call Joel. I won't pull a prank on the new guy. So <laughs> just have Joel there and... I think when Michael saw it, he he was like, "Oh, that's great. Yeah. Okay, yeah. that's funny. Sure, all right, all right, I'll take yeah, it. Yeah, that's all right. It, is it too late to cut him out of the movie? <laughs> I have yes. Cut. God damn it! Shit. Yeah. Um, Nancy Cartwright provides the voice of the red shoe that gets killed by the dip. We've been bringing her up a lot recently. I know, right? What's up with that? Um, I'm shocked yeah. that The Simpsons has made a joke about that. Like, hmm. I, I mean, how they they did okay. Well, not, not a full Roger Rabbit treat as a horror, but they've had moments in The Simpsons where it was live action animation. Hmm. You know, the end of uh, Homer three yeah. D. Ooh, erotic cake. The uh, the the um, <laughs> uh, there was the uh, the, the sequence in going to the TV with uh, Regis Philbin. Oh yeah, that was great. I love that one. Yeah, love that one. Um. Yeah, I, I, I talked about that first footage. Um, I gotta say, look, you know, St- Sting doesn't belong everywhere. I, I'm just gonna say it. <laughs> One of these stings is not like the other. Yeah, and like one of these stings the just doesn't belong. Does does great. R.I.P. Bob. Um, one of these. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He sung that song. I forgot. I forgot yeah. that was Bob. All right, I feel bad R.I.P. now. Bob from Sesame Street. Just stupid. Pull one out for a real one. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> keep it together. Keep it together. Um, yes, we're all done here. Um, yeah, there's no way this thing is all going to work because. The end, because the entire movie, right? It takes place in the forties. The end credit music is Sylvester's score. It would be so out of place. It's like you really, you're in the decade, you're in the forties, or at the end of the movie, and then just the most night. It's a good song. It's also eighties, so it's like oh, oh, right. 
This game took out an 80. It's like... Okay. I... Don't hate me. Playing Chance and Automobiles. I love that movie. It's a fantastic movie. The end credit song always, like... We're always like takes me out of him, like oh, and yes. now here's this this cheesy '80s song playing under the credits. Like, yeah, it's not memorable. Yeah, yeah, that too. It's also kind of forgettable. Which okay, fine. I don't know. I actually kind of like the Blazers. Yeah, it, it really would have thrown things off at the end of this movie. It's it you know it reminds me yeah, of. Yeah, it would have. I like the song, but it's great. You know, you know, you know what it reminds me. Of? You know what this would have been like the uh Another movie that Sting got screwed out of, but then got recompensated for, and it's a Disney movie, My Emperor's New Groove, where it's this jolty light, I I literally talked about this in in a previous movie episode, but fuck it, this jolty light buddy comedy borderline Chuck Jonesian in humor, and at the very end, it's my My funny friend and me, this very deep, heartfelt Oscar nominated uh, Oscar nominated song. It's like, man, this doesn't fit. This doesn't work. Sting, you've missed the point. You've forgotten the plot. The the slow jam the slow jams versions of the Disney songs that played in the nineties was more fitting than that. Get Peebo Bryson in here, he'll help. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, I I wrote down here some favorite lines, moments. Uh, I, I, I don't know if you have any, but the ones I wrote down here are um, Eddie and Jessica, they're driving out with Barry in the cab, trying to save Roger, then Eddie just says what we're all thinking. Seriously, what do you see in that guy? He makes me laugh. Which That's all that needs to be said. <laughs> all needs to be said. It's also driven a lot of guys who really like a girl to go, okay. I just win them with humor, and it'll work. Mm. I saw it in a movie once. No. Yeah. Um. And and going back to the Yosemite Sam giving uh, Eddie the gun, I just love that in, in a script, in, like a script session. Okay, so Eddie has to go. He needs a gun to go to Toontown because he's gonna shoot the person who kidnapped Roger. So what type of gun should it be? Should it be like like a barrel gun, like an Elmer Fudd situation? Well, it has to be a cartoon gun. Right. Where would he get a cartoon gun from if he's not in Toontown yet? Yosemite, Yosemite Sam, Sam gave, it, gave to it, him. it to him as a gift. Yes! That's, and also just the bullets. They're fun. Even if the first one is a Native American one and doesn't hold up well. Oh, but it's well. 1940s. No, it's fine. It's oh, fine. well. It's fine. But also, I just love, you know, the bullets like, where have you and then just Eddie going drunk. Perfect. I love that. Yeah. Um, the entire two town sequence. It's fantastic. And I love that when RK Maroon is shot, we get it because so Eddie like tied his tie to the yes. editing bay to get him to talk. I love when he gets shot. We see his body. Yeah. We just it's like shot. There's a dead body tied to an editing bay. Yeah. It's a Touchstone movie. Don't worry, folks. You'll see Bugs Bunny soon, but first, here's a dead body. <laughs> it's Touchstone. They're okay with it. Yeah, it's all good. It's all good. You know, people die. All right, so uh, are there a- any other favorite lines or moments that we haven't discussed um, yet? I've, I've probably already discussed them here. Um, 
there, there, so much of this movie is 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 just wonderful to me. I, I, I some of the stuff you've discussed. I love the Toontown sequence, obviously. I love the madness of the climax before it gets too terrifying. I love the ending shot. I love just the moments where Bob Hoskins is really getting into what this movie is, and you know, I, I don't have a ton to add from what you you put in there, uh, except for maybe. The moment where um, Judge Jim is trying to smoke out Robert, uh, Roger by uh, by doing a shave and the haircut, and Roger is literally pet- like just clenching himself because he knows he has to do the next two notes. Yes, and I just love love Eddie's line like, "Man, I don't know who's crazier, you or Doom." It's like, yeah. well, eh, the thing is, yeah, and and just um, it was with Doom. Oh yeah, so. In regards to me with Doom, like, oh, was I petrified of Doom? I wasn't scared of the Doom at the end, who's like, he's the the fully alive, like, with the animated. The thing that freaked me out as a kid was the stop motion one, where he's flat, and he Hmm. gets up, and he's waddling to the... That freaked me out as a kid. And fun fact, Robert Zemeckis has that model in his office. Of course he does. That's your token. You go. It just it, that that freaked me out. It's just the most demented thing yeah. possible. So just wrapping up uh, a lot of the discussion on this movie. What makes this movie still incredible to this day? I think we've talked about some of the highlights. This movie feels both magical and otherworldly, yet at the same time realistic and dark and dramatic at the same time. It has all of the all room for all of these tones and all of these genres and things is able to make all of them work. There are amazing characters that have stood the test of time. Uh, it, so many shots look amazing, and it's one of those things where you can take any shot from this movie and you can pretty much tell that it's this movie. Uh, so many wild ideas. Um, I also love the fact that there was never really a sequel to this movie. There were attempts to. They tried doing a prequel called uh, The Toon Platoon, I believe. Um, and... They also tried doing an animated series that would end up being Bonkers because Amblin didn't want to give them the rights. Not like the adjective bonger, Bonkers, the, um, the name of the show would be Bonkers. Anyway, um, I like the fact that this is a singular, unparalleled, unremade item of love for this genre. And there is a lot in here that still makes me smile and is still can't really be redone or done again on film. And I love that. I love that it's just yeah. like this signa- singular relic of its time. And it's rightfully a classic. Yeah. I will say, I know people, when the when the Chip and Dale movie came out, the one Z Plus. Oh, yeah. And when like that it. came out, everyone's like, oh, it, it's Roger Rabbit 2. No. No. That's doing, in our opinion... For it's written by people who would not write a Roger Rabbit two. The Lonely Island guys would not write a Roger Rabbit two. No, that that they don't have it in their nature. But what they do, do are able to do is make fun of the culture that's popped up after Roger Rabbit came out. There's mm-hmm. something to be said about the culture of this movie. This movie Roger Rabbit was made in. We live in a time now where IP is everything. Studios buy other studios based purely. On the idea of getting more intellectual property to mine yeah. for so they can make content that's safe and doesn't take any risks, but offers a high reward and <laughs> in investment. Also read Disney buying Fox. Yeah. Has 
anything good come from that? No. Not quite yet. Every single... Like, my God, there's a neither museum thing coming in a couple of days, and it looks terrible. It does, <laughs> it looks yeah. awful. And, like, they're not doing a good job. This... This idea, this perspective of, oh, yes, we IP, that's how we build on things. This idea didn't exist in the 1980s, at least not in the extent it does today. Yes, money was exchanged with $5,000 per character. I think if you were to count every character in that final scene, you could probably do a rough estimate of how much it cost. And with the minor stipulations. But it was done in a way that didn't feel too corporate. Bugs was allowed to act like Bugs. Daffy was allowed to act like Daffy. No one, no, they're not being their, oh, child-friendly selves. We gotta act like we're marketing something so we can't be too violent. No, they're themselves. Also, not one legacy character is given more focus than others. Yeah. Hell, you, you could argue there's restraint from Disney at this time, to not have their characters play a main role in the movie? Like, it's Disney. I'm sure they wanted to be like, oh, we'll make the movie, but Mickey Mouse has to help Roger. Nope, doesn't happen. The, 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 the restraint is like, we can have a Goofy cartoon play in this scene because we own Goofy. Okay, fine. Also tells, some, also tells you something about what, what the company was at the time. Yes. Disney wasn't in the they weren't the big bad in the entertainment industry at this point. They they were trying to survive. They had a brand new CEO. They had horrible box office results that were just starting to turn around. Trying to appeal to a demographic and an audience that seems to have passed them by. Right. And the fact that they were able to do that in a way that was successful in both box office and awards... This movie won awards. It, it ran a killing at the Academy Awards. Oh my god, yeah. The fact that they were able to do this, the fact that the good faith that Disney gained from this was able to help everyone involved. Yeah, well, movie comes out in 88. Spielberg, a couple years later... Goes back to WB. Okay, let's work on these Looney Tune IDs the guys have. That yeah, kicks off the, the Looney Tune. That it kicks off the Looney Tunes Renaissance in a way. There's a photo. I think there's there's like a, a card that came out recently of like, oh yeah, Warner Brothers sent this card to Disney as a thank you or something. And it's like hmm. all the characters palling around or something because yeah, what's the what's the phrase? Um. All tides lift good ships or whatever. Something like that. Yeah. Something like that. Where it's like, because of Roger Rabbit's success, animation had success. In Disney. At WB. Other studios, not as much. Um, but to be fair, they didn't do much with the characters. <laughs> they're the, they're the <laughs> ones who didn't do much. It's like, oh. Yeah. But, um... Yeah, it's this is a movie that yes, it could it it can't be done again because there is no way they would allow this to be done again because everyone's so focused on their toys. Yeah. You can't play with mine because I have a streaming service where I have to make all these content properties for my benefit. Screw helping. 
We don't yeah. help anymore. All for one and all for me. Which is unfortunate. Yeah, the one bad thing about this movie is that it depresses you that the studios don't really work like that anymore. And they're like, oh, this was so great. And it's not like this anymore. And it's kind of upsetting. All right. So wrapping up our thoughts on this movie, on this wonderful movie that we both really enjoy. Um, I'm, I'm going first to, to, to open the, to, to, to cue, cue you guys in. I'm going first because Mark has so much to say about this. Um, I love this movie. I think it's an unparalleled cinematic experience. Like, so much of my watch of this movie last night was just me going, like, shit, no other movie does this. No other movie makes me feel like this. Movie making never got close to this again. And it's just, it's, it's really just, there is nothing else quite like this movie that works as well as it does on so many different levels. The, the acting, the voice acting, the animation... The way it's shot, the way it moves, the way it feels, the way it's also a film noir. It does so much correctly and it's still such a joy to watch. Not just on the novelty of what it is, but also just on how it makes you feel and what it does. It's so multifaceted. It's so versatile and can do so many things. It's not overly long. It doesn't feel like it's too much at some times, which you would think so with the um, Toontown sequences. It's just a success on so many levels. And it works so damn well. And I, I don't watch it as often as some of my other favorite movies, but I, I love watching this every so often just to pick it up and go, you know what, this is still as good as I remember. I am thankful that, that people still love watching this movie and that it's probably going to keep holding up for a while. So, as I say at the beginning of this episode, this is my favorite movie of all time. Why? Why is it my favorite movie of all time? I have a lot of favorite movies. I like a lot of things. Why is it my favorite movie? Well, I, I, I can classify it by what I have found to like in my now 27 years of watching movies, give or take. So, I love when movies entertain me. Um, while I'm not against a genre of you know drama, documentary by any stretch, if a movie is able to entertain me to some extent, I tend to enjoy it more. Movies are meant to provide a sense of emotion to which you are viewing on the screen, and enjoyment is what I strive to see every single time. I also love it when movies make me laugh. Um, comedy is the most owned amount of home media I own, yet I yes. even I have to admit, I don't go to the movies to see a comedy often, which I think that's something to do with the Hollywood system, frankly. They'll make, they'll make big screen comedies much. Yeah, probably. There's not a lot of studio comedies here. Yeah. You know, because, again... Comedy is the most amount of homie I own because you know, there are just days where I'm a little down and I go, you know what? I haven't seen Ghostbusters in forever. I haven't seen Spaceballs in a bit. I'm going to put that on and I have a great time. Comedy has the ability on people to take them out of a dark place and enjoy life. I also really love animated movies. Um, of course. I've, I've never had anything against live action films as a kid. If you were to ask me, like, then or even now, like, what type of movie would I want to see? A good 70% of the time, it would probably be an animated movie, preferably preferably around the 90s renaissance, because that's just what I grew up with. And what's great is, as a kid, I enjoyed animated movies thanks to their comedy or characters. Now, I watch them for the animation itself sometimes. How the characters move. Oh, this character had a really great expression. Here, I wonder who animated it. This gag is great. Why is the gag great? Well, the timing is, is just right. 
And a common denominator, and all, and all three of these things, is like, 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 what's the type of studio that makes these movies the most? It's Disney. And what's so funny to me about Roger Rabbit, but my favorite movie, is that when you really look at it, Disney is the least represented section of the movie. They're not the main focus of characters. We now again, we see tons of them in the movie. I'm talking more in regards to how the film is presented and operates. Like, for example, Roger Rabbit's sense of humor, how it delivers jokes, it's very much based on the Looney Tunes text every sensibilities. How it's shot and the tone it provides at certain points. That's an Amblin production or, or, a, or a Zemeckis film. So what, what about this movie does, what does Disney provide besides the marketing and half of the financing and its later use of the property and the parks and merchandise? And what the Disney side provides is the senses that I've come to expect and enjoy from, from their library and from movies. I'm always entertained whenever I come back to this film. I always laugh when I come back to this film. I always love the animation and Roger and Jessica and Herman sometimes. And I just love the animation of all the characters who come from everyone's childhood. I can't not smile when I see Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny yes. on screen together because that's the purest definition of childhood joy. Seeing your two favorite characters in both morals and comedy coming together this one time just for a laugh just so Bugs Bunny can mess with Eddie like he's always done the past 80 years that's why I love Proof and Roger Rabbit as everything I'd ever want to see feel and experience in a movie beautiful yeah I can't top that that's why I went first but yeah I agree with a lot of that it's it's a pretty perfect movie, and I love that we got to talk about it here. I think I think I'm giving it a five out of five. I don't think there's any question. I am also giving this a five out of five annuals. Yes, of course, just, it deserves it. Just perfect. I guess we could briefly talk about uh, Roger Rabbit usage later. In that, so briefly, they made shorts. They made some short. Made three shorts. And then um, Disney got more successful and went, hey, Amblin, we don't need you anymore. And Amblin went, like hell you do. I'm taking my Roger Rabbit and going home. So they couldn't make the shorts anymore. Um, They made the ride. They made the Roger Rabbit's uh, tail tune spin. That ride is still in Disneyland. Somehow. I I, I, I don't know how that ride's still there. Maybe one day I'll go on it. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Um, but yeah, so Roger, he was in the parks. Don't show up anymore. He he was in like TV specials. Like, they used Roger a lot in the 90s. for Especially for MGM Studios when it opened up. He was like one of their main characters. It's like, yeah. oh, give me, give me Roger Rabbit. How about that? Roger Rabbit as a character. I mean, he shows up in the Chippendale movie. Like, like as like a, a tip of the hat. Out That's of respect, great. it's it's Charles Fleischer voicing him, which is nice. It's like, oh, which which that immediately got my attention. I'm like, holy shit, got Roger Rabbit? Fuck, how'd you do that? Mm-hmm. You asked, apparently. <laughs> oh, I just assume 
and Cinderella Island went to Spielberg's desk and went, "Come on, <laughs> come on!" Goes, I like the cut of your chip. And Spielberg's like, I like "No, I don't do that chip. anymore." <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for bringing that back. I was worried. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, the the character of the rabbit's kind of gone by the wayside, but um, thankfully, you can very easily still find this movie wherever you look. It's always on sale. Oh, yeah. I, I, that's the blow. Again, it, it's for free. As of right now, it's for free on YouTube. Officially, just go watch Raven Roger Rabbit on YouTube whenever you want. Yeah. And that just be, it just bewilders me. It's like, it's my favorite movie. I, I could buy for $8 or whatever. It's, it's a it's good It's very deal, accessible. And Disney is not trying to hide it or anything. It's, it's very clear. It's on Disney Plus. You know, I, you can find it in it for anywhere you really want to. It's 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 out there, and um, Disney is thankfully not ashamed of this movie. And even though they're not advertising its characters and merchandising it as much as I'd want them to, they're still somewhat proud of this movie and that it was able to get done. And they stand by this achievement, which thank God. So yeah. So uh, let's let's see what you guys had to say about. Who framed Roger Rabbit? Yeah, I bet y'all love it. <laughs> All right, so our first comment here comes from James Rowley at James Rowley 21, who calls Roger Rabbit a cinematic masterpiece. Agreed. It is the mm-hmm. definitive hybrid film with great acting, an engaging story, well-written characters, a beautiful score, and phenomenal animation. Easily one of the greatest movies ever, 10 out of 10. Which, uh... Yeah. Yeah? <laughs> can't, can't really you disagree know, with that. You know, I kind of knew we would have some comments from people who adore this movie because, well, it's it's Roger Rabbit. I mean, come on. Right. So, yeah. Uh, I agree. This is an amazing movie, and I'm glad we got to cover it on this show. Yes. In great length, too. Yes. I hope, I hope you've stuck with it. I us. love that on movie episodes... I've gotten to a point where they're, they've, they've always been longer than the movie itself. Yeah. But hopefully you guys are into that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, we also have a comment from a uh, frequent commenter and friend of the show, Spiderus Prime. Spiderus Prime 2. Who says, um, this movie rocks, but man, I wish we had a sequel with either American cartoons versus anime or cartoons versus video games around that time. You know, it's really an interesting like, kind of thing. Like, okay. So, you have this movie in the 80s that is basically about, you know, all these cartoon characters from, you know, the 40s and 50s and all these things. And I think the closest thing to what Spiderus was talking about, or if we could have a contemporary version about this with all the, the media figures from, you know, a lapsed time period, the closest thing we have to that is Chippendale Rescue Rangers, the movie, which I thought was amazing. I'd also argue that the uh, Ready Player One film by Spielberg was, was also... I would argue that as well. As well. Yeah, and I mean, the, the difference, though, is that movies nowadays um, using IPs and using pre-existing characters means something completely different. It's also a promotion of the character and maybe not, and at times, a misuse of a character, like using the Iron Giant in Ready Player One as a killing machine, which completely defeats the purpose of the Iron Giant in that movie. Um, but, like, at the same time, you have movies like uh, Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers that aren't meant to completely promote IPs, but are lost in the shuffle of movies that do and people forget that it's the joke, which is a theme with a lot of movies written by Lonely Island. By the way, 
Roger Rabbit also shows up in um, Chippendale Rescue Rangers. That movie was influenced very much by this movie. And I like it a lot, and hopefully a lot of you guys like it a lot as well. Oh, um, man. But yeah, no, I, I, I do see your point, Spider-S. And I think that it'd be very interesting to see how 40s cartoon characters would, you know, <clears throat> would co- compare and collaborate with, you know, Super Mario or, you know, characters from Akira or whatever, or however you want to do it. It's a very fascinating perspective, yeah. I mean, Looney Tunes versus Godzilla would be very interesting. Let's imagine a Godzilla movie where all the human... It's the Looney Tunes. They have to, like, oh no, Marvin has sent Godzilla. (laughs) Shit. (laughs) Quick, Wily, get all your Acme products. Destroy all morons, it'll be called. Oh my gosh. Or or destroy all maroons. Exactly. And it would just be like um, all these cartoon characters in the middle of Japan running amok. We're not just saying this because, and I don't think that it's off base to say this, Spiderus is a big fan of the uh, Godzilla films. We're saying this because it would honestly be pretty cool. Yeah. (laughs) Or just get like, you know... Like, like, that's the event that gets Mickey and Bugs to work together again. Oh my god, Godzilla's attacking. You Godzilla's do something. attacking. A bygone be bygone just trying to get rid of him. That would be actually pretty cool. <laughs> um. Yeah. And our last, uh, last comment here is from uh, Gavin North at Gavin North 11 who just has to say, it's a classic Disney film and a great gem. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Yeah, the yeah, Roger Rabbit is one of those movies where because it's not as heavily advertised as the other Disney films, it feels like whenever you find it, it's like, oh, what's this movie? Wait a minute. All these characters are in it? Wait, it's actually really good? And then you yeah. go, how come nobody's talking about this? And then you go on the internet for five seconds and go, oh, everybody knows about this. <laughs> and it's very odd that... Um... It's very odd that, like, you know, because he says, you know, great Disney film. It's like, well, yeah, it's technically a touchstone film, but it's technically also been grandfathered into Disney. But at the same time, Disney doesn't like talking about Homer Frame Roger Rabbit a lot for some reason. Because it's not a Disney Renaissance animated classic or a post-tangled animated classic or an animated remake. Um, And that's clearly the niche that a lot of Disney productions um, fill these days. Um, but I think that it's probably one of the best things Disney has put out. And I think it's, yeah. while what makes it un-Disney and anti-Disney also makes it very Disney, if that makes any sense at all. Sure. Um, <laughs> uh, well, yeah, let's go with that. Um, by the way, man, how crazy would it be in like five years or like, okay, here's a crazy screwball idea. They've gone through all their 90s films. They've gone through all the 2000 films. They're like, okay, how about this? We do Roger Rabbit, except it's flipped. The entire world is animated. But Roger Rabbit's a real rabbit. <laughs> sounds terrible. Yeah. That sounds absolutely terrible. Sounds exactly what, like what a Disney Disney would probably movie. still do it, but yeah, it sounds exactly. terrible. Yeah. We have one final comment from the ghosts outside my window that say, Woo. God damn it. Little Richard, go home. (laughs) Go home, little Richard. You're not needed here. 
I say that because as we're recording this, it is it, we're recording this on the very windy um, Friday before this, and not to date this at all, but um, it is so cold that I'm literally hearing the wind r go up against my window, and it sounds like ghosts going woo. It is the most stereotypical wind I have ever heard, and so it's the ghosts that hopefully like uh, Roger Rabbit. Alright, so thank you everyone for your, your comments this week, and for every week that you guys have given us comments throughout the year of 2022. We, we love interacting with you guys through, through, through the show and just knowing that there are there are people who listen to the show and then watch the cartoons and actually want to contribute to the conversation is uh, very cool. So thanks. Yeah. You know, I mean, we, we, we like hearing from y'all and we like the fact that we get to compare and contrast opinions and, and, and be respectful while we do so. And so, yeah, you know, it's, it's been nice. Um... Why don't we segue towards the important stuff? So that was 2022. That was a really good year for us. I hope you guys enjoyed um, a lot of what we just put out for you guys in the last 365 days. We are very proud of it. We've done a lot of really fun stuff. We have a lot of things cooked up for 2023, including, yes, that long-awaited Space Jam A New Legacy episode, which... We are really excited about and should be heading to your eardrums in about uh, soon. Um, soon. Let's say soon. In quarter one of 2023. How about that? We'll, we'll, we'll yes, in quarter one of 2023. We also have plans to cover, yes, more shorts. Uh, we have plans to cover more uh, contemporary Looney projects. We're going to cover King Tweety next year. We're going to probably cover some episodes of Bugs Bunny Builders next year. We're going to do a lot more corners of this. We might um, continue some of the things that we've already kind of looked at. Um, we, we plan on curating a, another very strong year of Looney content that you guys will enjoy. Yeah. And one of the things that we are going to be instituting at the beginning of next year, which is in a week or so, is we are instituting a Patreon. Yes, that is right. We have become yes. filthy, awful sellouts. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, as I was for launching the Patreon, um, we're not desperate. Okay, first things first. We're not desperate for money. We're not desperate! <laughs> we're not. But, but like, like, what we're doing... Okay, Let's be completely honest. Speak, damn it! Doing this show, doing this show for two years has been the best goddamn job. If if you could but call it's it a job, job at this point, it's, and it's no, yeah. no, it's a very fun hobby. What Mark is trying to say <laughs> is that we have been doing this for two and a half years. We've really enjoyed it. Lately, it has become essentially a second or third job for us, and we would like. A bit more incentive, I guess, suppose, to keep doing it as well. And that includes making this Patreon, which features... Uh, we have we have different tiers plotted out. We'll go into detail um, on socials during the new year. But we have all these other different things for you guys as incentives to uh, help us out, including we're going to be doing these uh, That's Not Quite All Folks After Dark live streams where we'll just get on and talk to y'all and, and talk about whatever. Um... Uh, we have other potential commentaries and bonus material we're thinking of doing. Uh, I'm going to write you guys shit if you get to a certain tier. 
Um, there's lots of cool stuff that uh, there's going to be a full rundown that Mark's going to do or that we're going to do uh, on social media that you guys will know what we're doing. But the bottom line is we've been doing this for so long. It's about time we, um, you know, took it to the next level and, um, exactly, you know, yeah. made it a bit more of like a full on, uh, business of sorts. So I hope y'all aren't mad that we're selling out a little bit. I hope y'all can understand that it's been a good two or so years of doing this for free. I was like, nothing about the show is going to change. Uh, we're still releasing episodes no. weekly. Uh, except for next month, where we're taking a week off, but we'll get into we'll it. time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, god damn it. I have like one week off. Um, but yeah, so essentially us... The extra content, it won't affect the flow of the show. It won't affect me editing the show. We made a very... We've optimized it in a way where we can still do the show every week. No problem. But also, you know, you guys get something extra out of it. And instead of just you know, listening to us yeah. talk about whatever. <laughs> no, it'll work for everybody. So that's going to be uh, starting in January. And we'll, we'll give full details somewhere. Um, but yeah, we have a lot of big plans for next year, uh, a lot of things we want to do, and hopefully you guys have enjoyed the ride so far and would like to keep going with us, because if you liked what we just did with Who Framed Roger Rabbit, we've got a couple more ideas of what to do similarly to movies like that, as well as some other regular movie episodes, and um, hopefully 2023 will be our best year yet, as good as this year was, so... Oh my god! That's what y'all have to look I, forward to. I I, I love I love the work we did this year, man. Like, oh we me too. hundred awesome. episodes. We did a hundred episodes. What we the did. hell? It's fucking great. Yeah, that I I I love looking at at the TV specials. We had so much fun material out of that. TV specials, the um, the commercials from a couple weeks ago. Uh, oh, that was, that I have just one more glass of Tang before I go. Um, one more. Yes. One more. Um, we had a lot of fun. Hopefully you guys had a lot of fun with us. Next week, uh, we're going back to shorts, right? Yes, we are. So for next week's show, we're going to be looking at musical shorts. Woo! Again. Now, give yeah. our to be fair, we haven't looked at musical shorts in like a year. Yeah. But so, these are some really good ones we wanted to do. Yes, these are ones that we got inspiration from um, from earlier this year. Actually, uh, we we attended mm -hmm. a Bugs Bunny at the Sim at the symphony events, the Philadelphia Orchestra. Yeah, great stuff. And uh, we we kind of thought of, of this episode while we were there because there were some great shorts that we that we watched. Mm -hmm. And we're like, oh shit, we should we should look at this one. Yeah. So the ones we're looking at next week are. A corny concerto, yes. high note, and a combo, a, a compare and contrast between Rhapsody Rabbit and the Tom and Jerry short, The Cat Concerto. Okay. Interesting. And judging from some things that were moved around, um, we have enough to do a potential third one of these, so that's pretty cool. Um, yes. Yeah, so that sounds like it's going to be a pretty good one. All right. So that's the end of this week's show. 
If you'd like to keep up with us on Twitter, you can follow me at Mark Hallam1995. And you can follow me at Tall Guy Schmidt. If you'd like to keep up with the podcast or give your thoughts for next week's episode, you can follow at that underscore loony or type in the podcast title. We are the first result. You can also find our podcast wherever podcasts are readily available. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, Player FM, Anchor, Stitcher, Amazon Music. We're also... Uh, we also have a YouTube channel where we post uh, some cobbled together clips of some of our, our favorite material. Uh, there's episodes coming out every other Friday, and we are doing good stuff there, so give that a look. All right. So, until next year, I'm Mark. And I'm Jordan. And if I may beg for you to listen to more of our stuff after the immense amount of stuff we've already done. Come on!